Shem Hashem Naseh V'Natzliach, Shiru Torah, Baruch Hashem, always good to be in Aventura. We have our weekly shiur. We are up to number 75 in the Musar Pirkei Avot series. Um, Baruch Hashem, lots of uh, different questions have been coming up over the last few weeks that uh, we're trying to deal with. The world around us is, uh, I used to say it's heating up. I think now we're getting at a point of near boiling point. Uh, there are uh, major, major problems around the world that um, I guess if you're hiding under a rock, maybe you don't know about them. But uh, if you're still in uh, part of civilization, today, at some point or another, it's going to cross your desk. Even someone like me that tries to not watch the news or care about the news or anything about the news, somehow it gets to me anyway. And uh, the question is, what's it have to do with us? What do we care? What do we care that the market is at all-time highs? Why do we care that almost every single country that has major weapons is very interested and inclined to go to a world war? What do we care that uh, the oil market is about to go on a bull run bigger than the stock market? Uh, because what's happening in Saudi Arabia is unprecedented. Uh, anyone who doesn't know, uh, it's been in essence one family controlling Saudi Arabia for a very long time. And the, uh, the, their so-called king had many sons, nephews, and so on, but you know, and each and every single one of them was a potential king once he died. Uh, well, one of these, uh, one of them, uh, decided that he doesn't want to be a possibility. He doesn't want to be a uh, candidate. He doesn't want to have uh, anyone getting in his way. So he decided to take over, and uh, just this past Sunday... He arrested, uh, he took over militarily, he arrested uh, 12 or 11 other princes uh, that, uh, in essence, were all candidates to be the next king of Saudi Arabia. Now, why do we care? Why do we care? Tachlis, we don't care. But as far as how it's going to affect the world at large, that's a different story. Now, each one of these people that got arrested is probably never going to make it out of jail. They're probably all going to get murdered. Two of them already got murdered. Uh, but this is a very big Musar lesson for us. And the reason why is because each one of them is a multi-billionaire. Multi, multi-billionaire with more money than there's books in this in this, in, 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 in kolels. Uh, we're talking about the richest people in the world, 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 billion dollars, like an insane amount of money. One of them is actually a very famous investor. Uh, his name was Prince Al-Walid. Uh, he's uh, on uh, CNBC, he was on CNBC very often, a very famous investor in big companies. He saved Citigroup uh, back in the 1990s. I remember a few investments that we had in the past. He was uh, a big investor in them as well. And uh, or a large shareholder in them. So, point being is that he's a very, very famous face, and the guy is sitting in jail like a dog right now, along with the rest of the people. And uh, really, they all know they're probably going to die very soon. Now, 
The question is, what's the money going to do for them? Now, each one of them has more money than we have limbs and proteins and uh, thoughts and uh, ideas and everything else you can imagine. We have that more money than that. What's it worth? Nothing. Because this guy that's taking over is going to take all of it and uh, it's going to change the world market forever. And uh, the reason why, he's going to take all of it. He's going to take all of their possessions. So imagine there's going to be one guy that has the money from all of these people. So we'll probably talk about this guy is going to be the first official trillionaire in the world. But aside from that, this is going to cause major chaos in the oil market because Saudi Arabia is a uh, the number one oil provider in the world. And uh, so this is unsettlement, this, this, this whole insanity causes investors to panic, which means that oil most likely is going to double, triple, or quadruple in price in the coming months. Not that I'm in the investment business anymore, but if I was, uh, this is very, very obvious. Um, now, this means gas prices will go up. This means that the... Uh, Precious metals will most likely be affected. This means the stock market will be affected. But most of all, this means that we're going to war. This means we're going to war. So Saudi Arabia is already very hot, and this guy specifically hates Iran, probably as much as the Jews hate Iran. And he's very, very interested in going to war with them to such an extent that he even contacted the government of Israel asking them if they joined forces with him to go against Iran. Um, and uh, if anyone doesn't know, a few months ago there was a big story about uh, the Trump family because Ivanka Trump converted to Judaism, and a lot of people had questions about whether it's a legitimate conversion or not. And long story short, so people have been pretty much, you know, monitoring her life with a uh, like a, with a microscope. Every time a little banana fell and she was next to it, hey, is that Chil Shabbat? Is that? Uh, Every single thing they did. Listen, I don't know if they're righteous, wicked. I don't really care. It doesn't make a difference to me. But I do know is that uh, somebody has to pay the bill in Shemaim at some point. So that doesn't, you know. But anyone that spends their life monitoring the Trumps or monitoring anybody else in the world should really be monitoring themselves. We were talking about before the Shiul. I learned from a friend of mine, Rabbi Shiloh, that uh, anytime you see somebody in the Beknesset, you see that the Tefillin, Sometimes moves. It's not straight. Happens. You know, you don't look at your forehead the whole time. So usually when you put it on, some people use a mirror to make sure it's straight. But the point is that even if you put it on straight, sometimes you pray, you move, the tefillin moves. So you have to straighten it. But you don't know because it's on your head. So the Baalim Musar say that anytime you see somebody else's tefillin is not in the right place, it's not because Hashem is saying, oh, you tzaddik, you go, go tell this guy. Go tell him, tzaddik, go tell him. To fix his tefillin. Yeah, of course you have to do that. But why did Hashem make you see it? Why did He make him see it? Why did He make somebody else see it? Because your tefillin are also on the side. Meaning you see a problem in other people, that means it's probably in your house too. You see a problem with their Shabbat, it's probably a problem with your Shabbat also. You see a problem in their marriage, it's a problem in your marriage also. That's the reality. So, anyway, a lot of people hate the Trumps, like the Trumps. doesn't really make a difference. Interestingly, the Trumps went to visit Saudi Arabia several months ago 
and uh, a lot of uh, the people that hate Trumps, hate the Trumps, uh, were uh, jumping on this because uh, they said, "Wait, they went on Shabbat. How could she go on Shabbat? Who gave her the etel to fly on Shabbat?" So anyway, they made a deal with this guy also. So that's actually also where he got his guts. Um, again, I don't really care about the politics part of it, but it seems like. Everything we've been talking about for the last few years about the war of Gog and Magog is, uh, is happening, whether you like it or not. Gog is rising. Gog is rising, whoever it is. But the Gemara specifically says that the Mashiach is not going to come until everyone is broke. Until everyone doesn't have any money. So, wait a minute. How could this be? The stock market, which I haven't followed in many, many months, but uh, someone asked me about it the other day, so I looked at it. Um, the market is at all-time highs. I mean, it doubled since I left just a f- couple years ago. Um, the, uh, there's this stupid, illusionary investment called Bitcoin that uh, was worthless when I left a few years ago and became even more worthless today but people are paying even a higher price for it. So I think it was maybe like 2000 a couple of years ago, and now it's like 7000 8000 I reached 8000 uh, The uh, The uh, dot-com bubble that we saw in the year 2000 is like a miniature bubble next to the bubble that we're in right now. You have companies that literally generate nothing and are being valued at 50 or $100 billion for absolutely no reason whatsoever. And the few that are generating something are also being valued at extraordinarily high, high prices. The point I'm trying to make is not to get you guys to either buy or sell anything. That's not my business. What I'm trying to tell you is that the way of Hashem, at least what we've seen, is that this is a pattern. There's a pattern of things that happen. And Hashem brings us very, very high. Very, very high. He brings us to an ultimate peak before he breaks everything. We get to a culmination point. We get to a high before everything collapses. If you see every major crash that has ever happened in the stock market history, real estate history, any business history, any crash that has happened on a personal history, people's personal lives, major billionaires, millionaires, whatever, always went that way. Always they hit a peak, and then they just there was no way but down. Sometimes it settled down for a little while, and then it was a bigger crash later. But either way, that's generally how it works. Hashem brings you really, really high, and then He collapses. And it seems like all of this is happening right now. And the oil market is next, because what's happening in Saudi Arabia is unprecedented. And I think that anyone that's not worried, it's time to get worried, because... The money that anyone has in their accounts, investments, and all of that stuff is not going to help them in any way, shape, or form. Because when the eventual crash happens, it's not going to be like any crash before. It's not going to be like the 2008 crash that I saw with my own eyes. It's not going to be like the crash of 2000.com. It's not going to be like the uh, long-term capital crash of 1996. A bunch of... uh, uh, smart smart guys, a couple of smart guys ran a big hedge fund 
over leveraged it it blew up but almost the whole entire market almost blew up because of them 1996 it's not going to be like the real estate recession of 91 it's not going to be like the major major collapse of 1987 where the market dropped over 20 percent in a matter of minutes it's not going to be like that at the end of days when hashem decides to press the button you're all going to witness something i've been saying for years but you're going to see it and unfortunately it's going to hurt no one is going to be protected from it and you're going to see the real bitcoin you're going to see what's the real Bitcoin. I'm not, this Bitcoin right now, this thing that's 7,000, 8,000, that stuff is it's nonsense. A bunch of people are going to end up losing a bunch of money, but I'm not talking about that. The real Bitcoin is that everyone that's working night and day chasing a dollar. Everyone in every country is chasing a dollar. Everyone in every country is chasing money. Everyone thinks they're convinced they're going to be rich. There's no one that goes to work every day that doesn't think that at some point in his life he's going to be rich. That's what keeps people going. Even if they're going to make only $70,000 this year or $80,000 this year or $100,000 this year, somehow, like, maybe it's not going to come from the job, but I'm going to keep doing this job until I get rich with something else. Everyone thinks they're going to be rich and that's why they work overtime. That's why they do all these things they do. They forget God and chase money. But what's going to happen... The Gemara says that everyone's going to be broke. How could everyone go broke? How could the guy Steve Bezos from Amazon just declared the richest man in the world has close to $100 billion? $95 billion or something like that. It's a ridiculous amount. How could he go broke? How could Bill Gates go broke? How could uh, all these people go broke? How? Well, you're all going to discover that Hashem runs the world and he's going to show you what the real Bitcoin is. By Bitcoin, I mean illusion. The illusion is, the illusion is that you're going to discover that the dollar you have in your pocket has been the real Bitcoin the whole time. I'm not going to over-elaborate on this financial terms, but just for the purpose of, of, of content for you guys, so you understand what I'm talking about. Until the late 70s, the dollar was backed by gold. The dollar was backed by gold, meaning that for every dollar they printed, they had an assurance that they have a certain amount of gold justifying the value of the dollar. Meaning, you can print as many dollars as you want or any currency as much as you want, but if you have nothing backing it, then it's worthless. It's just paper. So until the 70s, and I believe it's 1976, if my memory serves me right, the dollar was backed by gold. At that point, the U.S. decided to no longer back, gold by, uh, back the dollar by gold, make it a freer currency, but they would justify its value by reporting things that are called M1, M2, and M3, which is called money supply. Is, some of you may know this, some of you don't. I mean, it's economy class, maybe. Point is, is that it's a controlled distribution of currency. So you can't, you don't just print currency out of control. Because if you just have, if there's no checks and balances of how much money you print, you can just print any amount of money and overnight become the richest country in the world. So you, obviously there has to be something to control. That's why it was always backed by gold. Because there's a certain amount of, there's a finite amount of gold in the world 
So therefore, you can't print more money than you have gold, if it's backed by gold, or if it's backed by oil, or if it's backed by whatever. When that stopped, they said, we're going to control it by reporting to you, dear folks, how much money we have, so you know that we're not going crazy. So that was the checks and balance system. What 99% of the population doesn't know is that they stopped reporting the number over 15 years ago. Meaning no one actually knows how much money, how much dollars are in circulation. And no one really cares. Because when the U.S. government needed hundreds of billions of dollars to be printed in a second, they were able to do it just by pressing a few buttons on a computer and it magically appeared because we needed it to save the crash we had in 2008. All the banks, all the hedge funds, all the uh, different institutions, mortgage companies, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, all these different mortgage companies. The money had to come from somewhere. What do you think? They actually printed all of that money overnight? Even if you tried printing it, they would be printing it from 2008 all the way till now and still not finish. So what did they just press buttons? And since it's not being reported or monitored by anyone, they can print as much as they want. Because that shows that they don't have as much, but it's not, again, another illusion. The point I'm trying to make is that that's the real Bitcoin. That's the real illusion. Everyone thinks that their money's worth something. So they think, listen, if you think the market's going to crash, I'll sell the stocks. If you think oil is going to go up, I'll buy oil. If you think, uh, you know, this is going to do this, I'll do this. If you think I'm going to do this. No, what I'm trying to tell you is that it's all going to become worthless. All of it. At the end of the days, it's all going to be worthless. Oil will be worthless. Dollar will be worthless. All currency will be worthless. It all will be worthless. Which means you have to now decide. Now, the second. Which currency are you going to chase until Mashiach comes? You have a spiritual currency and you have a monetary currency. Tell me by the end of the lecture. רבי מתיה בן חרש אומר, הווה מקדים בשלום כל אדם והווה זנב להריות ואל תהי ראש לשועלים. So before I forget, this uh, shiur will also go to a רפואה שלמה, I had a list here somewhere, רפואה שלמה to חיה בת לאה, אשר בן רחל, and מתיתיהו יואל ברוך בן גיטל. בעזרת השם they'll have רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף, and all of עם ישראל will have רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף. So where Mishnah 75 is connected to this as well, it's probably connected to some of the questions you guys want to ask. If you have questions, ask away. If you don't, we'll just continue. Go. Did you just hear what I said? It's all worthless. If you want to spend your time chasing, go ahead. Enjoy. I'm not in the investment business. I'm not giving you investment advice. I'm giving you life advice. My life advice is you have to decide. Chase money, go. There's plenty of opportunities to make money. But if you like to chase a bunch of things that are eventually going to be worthless, you're no different than the cow that keeps eating and drinking every single day, not realizing that they're just preparing it to go to the butcher. That's, that's the reality. So, chase money? Chase. What's it going to be worth? Nothing. You, some of us don't even have to wait for Mashiach. Some of us don't have 120 years. 
Over the last week, I found out of uh, half a dozen different people that are on their deathbeds. Just the last week. Half a dozen people that were perfectly healthy on their deathbeds. One got a stroke. One, just, one, re- one uh, found out that he has terminal cancer. One got into an accident. Uh, one has some other health issues. And the sixth one, I, f- I, I don't remember. But it's, 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 mamash, it's, it's getting insane. And I don't know if it's maybe just in my life where I'm just happy to, to, to meet all these people, but people are suffering. People are suffering. And uh, they're looking for hope. They're looking for something. And um, all the money in the world can't help them. All the Teslas in the world are not going to help them. All the Bitcoins in the world are not going to help them. Nothing is going to help them, really. They can't even help themselves anymore. Only thing they can help them is what they did till now. And what they leave behind once they leave. Someone that was a kofir, which happens to be most of them, by the way. Not all of them, but most of them. Um, obviously, what they did till now is, is not going to help them. Their only hope is what they leave behind. If, if they have any money, they could help people do tshuva with that money. How people learn Torah with that money, but the reality is most of them don't even know if that's if they could you know the difference between right or left. So, as far as if you're still looking for investments, if you're still looking to chase money, if you're still looking to make money and all of that stuff, then you probably need to watch the first seventy-five shiurs again. Buy whatever, buy whatever is going to get you from point A to point B. Hashem has money for both of them. Hashem has money for both of them. If he can pay for one, he can pay for two. How do you enjoy Shabbat? Shabbat sinners. Ruining my Shabbat. Okay. Next. Go. Last week's parasha being uh, um, Vayera? Mm-hmm. Okay. The Rebbe was told that Abraham was given the information that uh, Rivka and his brother were, were, had children. So was it a prophecy or was it he was just saying that to let us know that um, Rivka was coming into the world or was he giving a prophecy knowing that Rivka was going to tell us? No, the, the, Torah, the Torah specifically says that Rivka was born, Rashi, if you look at Rashi, Rashi says that uh, the Torah specifically makes it a point to tell us that Rivka is born because there's a rule in creation that Hashem does not take away a tzaddik or a tzaddikah without there being a replacement. So uh, the uh, Rivka was born and immediately we learn from this week's parasha that Sarai Menu died. So Rivka, Rivka, Rivka was born before she died, before Sarai Menu died. <coughs> Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I knew that I know that he uh, sent Eliezer specifically to his family uh, because he—that's the only family that he is allowed to marry. But uh, not because he knew that Rivka. Not to my knowledge that he knew that Rivka was specifically going to be the wife. Because if you knew specifically that Rivka was being the wife, I would assume he would tell him look for someone named Rivka. 
so I don't remember seeing that in any midrashim. But I, I don't know everything. Next, go. After Hakamocha, okay. Love your friend as you love yourself. Why? Why are we saying it? What? What does it mean? You should want as good for your friend as you do for yourself. That's the pshat. You should want as good. So, for example, when someone sees another person getting a brand new car, instead of eating their heart, instead of being upset, ah, I can't believe they have a brand new car. It should be the opposite. Like you know what? Oh Hashem, that he has a brand new car. Even though you don't even have a motorcycle, even though you don't have a bicycle, even if you don't have a toy of a bicycle. But the fact that he got it or she got it, you're happy. Why? Because you would want the same thing for yourself. So it's being happy for another person. That's the pshat. The deeper meaning, Bezat Hashem, will connect to this Mishnah. Next. Can. So what happens if it's a Malachi to support a Jew? Um, you know, but Noah Hyde is righteous. He's not wicked. I'm saying someone who doesn't necessarily declare that he is following the way of the Torah. Perhaps. Okay. But he's supporting but, Torah? Yeah. Good. get a reward for that as well? True. Yeah, I mean, he's not, he's not supporting Torah because he doesn't believe in the Torah. He may not follow the entire Torah. But he obviously believes in it to some extent for, for supporting it. So yeah, of course, he's definitely getting something for it. Uh, but I can tell you generally that to have the merit to support real Torah, like real, real Torah, most people don't have. Like you actually have to have merit to support real Torah. You have to have merit in Shemaim to support real Kiruv. There's plenty of Torah institutions there's plenty of rabbis, there's plenty of synagogues, there's plenty of yeshivot. But as far as like real, authentic, l'shem shamayim type of learning, l'shem shamayim type of teaching, like the real authentic Torah, there's not that many. So usually the uh, money that goes to um, these types of institutions that are real institutions comes from decent people, very decent people that have merits in shamayim already, and the Shem is bringing them even higher. On the other hand, the uh, the, institu- the other institutions, it's a klal. Uh, it's uh, just everybody. Some yes, some no, some are decent, some are not so decent. There's plenty of wicked people that uh, donate money. Uh, and that's actually how they justify their wicked behavior. So, for example, uh, there is a Rasham uh that made a major chilul Hashem back in uh, 2008, 2009. His name was Bernie Madoff. And Bernie Madoff uh, stole billions and billions of dollars from different institutions and uh, people and so on for years, for decades. Uh, And um, I actually, after he came out, I wrote an article about how he did it. Like how and, and how actually what he did can still to this day be repeated in five minutes. In five minutes, you can do the same thing that he did. Five minutes. It's very easy. It's very easy to steal, unfortunately. 
and the feds still haven't fixed it. The regulators still haven't fixed it. It's really stupidity. It's pure stupidity. Or they're part of it. I'm not really sure. But it's very, very simple to, to create a Ponzi scheme. It's hard to get that kind of money like he had. But the point being, as far as the structure of the, of the vehicle, it's very, very simple. I actually wrote an article trying to help the regulators close the hole. Hey, there's a huge hole. It's very simple to steal money. But to this day, they haven't fixed it. Anyway, this guy justified his awful, disgusting behavior of stealing. How did he justify being a thief for so many years? I mean, you have to still look at yourself in the mirror every day and face your conscience. You may be able to lie to people every day. You may be able to, to lie to everyone, but you can't lie to yourself. You, you still have to look in the mirror. You still have a conscience. So how does he lie? How do people like him lie every single day? Is they do good things, or what's viewed as good. So he donated money, donated money to a lot of synagogues, a lot of Jewish institutions, uh, a lot of charities, uh, different types of uh, institutions that uh, were considered good. He's stealing from them while giving to the others, stealing from them while giving back to them, and so on and so forth. So he would steal from people in order to give charity, but that would make him feel good. The reality of it is that not only does he not get the merit of tzedakah, but there's an additional stealing punishment that he'll get for what he's doing. So generally all thieves, all wicked people justify their behavior by something good. It's very rare to find someone that's pure evil from head to toe. Usually there's something that they're doing that's decent to justify their behavior. For example, the Nazis, the Nazis were known as the most polite people in the world. Um, for, they would always say thank you. I think it said uh, Dankeschenk or something like that. Uh, I think they would, they, they would say thank you to everyone. And they would treat animals with more respect than even the lefties do today. You know, lefties, they take their pets. These liberal people, they take their pets to the restaurant and they, and they force the restaurants to give them a dish to their dog. The evil Nazis would treat their dogs even better. And one of the Chachamim, I forget the name, one of the Tzadikim at the time said, you'll see that a nation that kisses the dogs like they do is eventually going to slaughter people. And this mamash was like a nevoah, it was like a prophecy. So these evil people would actually tell the Jews going into the gas chambers, thank you. Every time someone would go into the gas chamber to die, they would say, thank you, thank you, danke schenk, danke schenk. So, point I'm trying to make to you is that the illusion that uh, they were living in, that this, this optical illusion that they gave themselves that they're nice, that they're kind, that they're polite, that they're civilized, generous, all of these things are still alive and well today. And some of them are in us too. Some of these falsehoods, some of these illusions are also in us. Hashem, I don't think anybody here is a murderer. But the illusion, the lies that Yetzirah fooled them to be them is still being used on us too. All of us think we're better than what we really are. All of us. No exceptions. Myself, probably the first one. This Musar Shiurim, you guys think it's for you. It's for me. I'm the first student. The reality is that all of us fool ourselves every single day. 
every single day with something or another to justify our behavior, especially bad behavior. There's even a pasuk written about us in the Torah. Ivelet adam tesalef darko ve'al Adonai is aflibo. The stupidity of man will steer him to the wrong direction, to go against Hashem, and then he gets mad at who? At Hashem for punishing him. What do you want him to give you a cookie? You stole. What do you want him to give you a reward in Olam Abba for being a thief? What do you want him to give you an uh, extra Olam Abba for, for being a murderer? What do you want? This is about us. It's about us. So, the, maybe one of these lefties is calling, complaining about the Shio, I'm mentioning them in the Shio. So, the uh, Rabbi Matya ben Harash has something to tell us. Maybe he's going to answer some of our questions. Maybe he's going to answer some of our questions. Rabbi Matya ben Harash says, Rabbi Magdim bishlom kol adam, ve've zanav la'arayot, ve'al tirosh l'shualim. Rabbi Matya ben Harash says, Initiate shalom, a greeting, to every person. And be a tail to lions, rather than a head to foxes. Anyone think we can get any answers from this? Connected to everything we just talked about? If you don't, then you haven't watched enough shurim. So, So first and foremost, we have to get to know who is this Kodesh Kodeshim that's mentioned in our Mishnah. Who is... Rabbi Matya ben Harash. Rabbi Matya ben Harash lived at the time of Rabbi Meir Balanes, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He was a third or fourth generation Tana. Uh, some say he was actually one of the students of Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos. Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos was also the rabbi of Rabbi Akiva. And the Torah talks about him in, in very, very big compliments of being talked about him that uh, he was the role model for being a tzaddik, for having Yirat Shemaim. But in the Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, which you just finished, Baruch Hashem, we have a tzaddik over here, finished Masechet Sanhedrin today, Kol HaKavod. Uh, Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, page 32b, says that after the craziness that happened in, uh, with the Roman Empire killing us, but not completely destroying us. Many people went to different exiles. And uh, one of the things that happened is that there was actually some Jews that uh, not only stayed in Rome, but actually tried rebuilding. Rabbi Matya, actually this is before the eventual collapse of everything. This is just preliminary stuff. Rabbi Matya actually left Eretz Yisrael and went to Rome. He left Eretz Yisrael and went to Rome. And he's the one that coined the, uh, the saying that staying in Israel is equal to all of the mitzvot. So I had a guy that I met when I went to uh, Israel, uh, I guess it's been a while now, almost two years ago. And uh, we met this guy and, uh, you know, we start talking. And uh, I told him, he says, you know, where, where do you live? And I told him I live in the United States. He goes, ah, oh, you know, it says that uh, someone like you is like an Oved Avodah Zarah. You're like an idol worshiper for, for living in the exile. And I said, where does it say that? 
And he said something about this. He says, you know, it's the, all the mitzvot. You can't do them if you live in the exile. So most people, especially people that are very Zionistic, very pro Eretz Yisrael, usually like Rabbi Matya. And the reason why is because it's very easy to mistranslate what he actually said. It's very easy. He's making it seem, or they make it seem really, not him. They make it seem that if you're not in Israel, you can't be a tzaddik. If you can't be in Israel, you can't do tshuva, you can't be righteous, you can't learn Torah. Everything you're doing is worthless. I have a few people every single day, no more, no less. A few people every day telling me, how come you don't tell everybody to do aliyah? To go to Eretz Yisrael, look what's happening in America. Anti-Semitism is increasing. The world at large hates us. Ta, 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 ta. Why don't you tell everybody, like some of the other rabbis in the world, to go do aliyah? I usually try to explain it as I say, I do tell them to do aliyah. A spiritual aliyah. Spiritual aliyah. Do tshuva. As far as physical aliyah, meaning to go up to Israel, that all depends on a case-by-case basis. Anyone that thinks that every single person must do aliyah is either living in illusion, he lives in a different world, probably between somewhere between Pluto and Mars, maybe on the right side, uh, near the uh, comets over there. Or they uh, are just full of themselves. Because it's clearly not for everyone. Doing Aliyah, even the Gemara itself specifically says, Gemara says that there's three things that can only be earned through Mesirut Nefesh. Olam Abba, Torah, and Eretz Yisrael. Olam Abba, obviously you have to make major sacrifices in your life to earn Olam Abba, to go to Gan Eden. Torah, you want to be a Talmit Chacham, it's not going to be like learning math. It's not going to be like learning history. You just memorize a few things, you pass the test. You have to toil with Torah every single day, every single night. It has to be tattooed in your mind. You learn Torah day and night to be a Talmit Chacham. You can't be a Talmit Chacham just coming to Shiur Torah once a week or going to learn a kolel from 9 to 5 and you're going to be Talmit Chacham. No chance in the world. Thinking that, thinking that you're going to be a Talmit Chacham just coasting, eating your popcorn while learning on the side, that by itself makes you an idiot as far as Talmit Chacham status is concerned. It's never going it, to... It's not earned that way. It's not earned that way. Talmit Chacham, Resh Laki says in Gemara Maseret Brachot, must be willing to kill himself. For what? For Torah. For Torah. Meaning, every single moment, every single moment, he's going to fight to make that moment a Torah moment. Every single thought he's going to fight to make that a Torah thought. Every single lesson, every single lesson in the world, business, marriage, children, bayot, problems, diseases, everything, he's going to, what can I learn about this? How can I connect this to the Gemara? How can I connect this to the Mishnah? How can I connect this to Pashat? Every single moment, every single lesson, how can I connect this to Kodesh? How can I make this holy? How can I make this holy? How can I make this Torah? That's that's Tamit Chacham. Tamit Chacham is has a narrow vision, tunnel vision. Only sees Torah. Everything else is meaningless. Do you think you're gonna eat your popcorn nine to five and you're gonna be Tamit Chacham? You're in a different world. Mesirut Nefesh. That's how you become Tamit Chacham. We talked about this in the past. 
You could learn, you could be righteous, you could be a decent human being, you could even be knowledgeable. You could even give Shurim Torah every week. Tamit Chacham? It's a different world. Different world. Very possible, can be attained by each and every single one of you, but requires major life sacrifices. Major. So now, we know that Olam Abba, Mesirut Nefesh. Tamit Chacham, Mesirut Nefesh. But also says Israel, Mesirut Nefesh. To live in Israel requires Mesirut Nefesh. How many people you know in Israel don't really care? They can live here, they can live there, they live here six months, they live there six months. They're on vacation. There's no Mesirut Nefesh. There's no sacrifice. It's a different type of living. It's a different type of living. We're talking about living a righteous life. We're talking about living a life with Hashem being your number one priority in your life. Living like that in Israel is not so easy. Not so easy. There's a lot of major sacrifices you need to make. A lot of eyes have to be closed. A lot of uh, pockets have to be controlled. A lot of major desires have to be contained. It's not easy. But the point being is that to say that every single person needs to do Aliyah is purely ignorant. And the reason why is because sometimes Aliyah can destroy families, not help them. It can destroy them. So... The purpose of, of, of each and every single one of us is to be part, to serve Hashem Barach. As a matter of fact, the Ramban, the Ramban, someone came to him and says, listen, we say vidui every day. We say vidui, chatanu, avinu, pashanu, I made murder, stole, womanized, all these different sins. He goes, I didn't do any of these sins. What do I say? Chatanu, avinu, pashanu every day. Especially Sephardic. So far, you can say twice a day. Ashkenazi, they don't say it in America. In Israel, they do. It's different. I don't know why. But point is that I didn't make all these sins, especially if you look at the Nusach of uh, uh, Rabbi Nisim. After you finish it, you're like, a murderer must have written this. Who does this? All of these sins? So he comes to the Ramban. He tells them, who does this? Why not say, Chatanu Abinu Pashanu all day? I sinned. I did this. I didn't do all this. Ramban actually says to him, if you knew the truth about how you're actually supposed to serve Hashem Barach, how you're actually supposed to serve Him, not what you're doing, how you're supposed to serve Him, not only will you see that you're guilty of everything in that list, but guilty of even more. And just the fact that you thought that you're not guilty, you have to do tshuva for it. How you serve Hashem. We have no idea how to serve Hashem. Many people don't even know what Hashem is. Their whole life, they think that it's uh, a statue they bought in Chinatown. They think it's a cow. They think it's a, uh, some guy that died 2,000 years ago. People think crazy things. They think it's their rabbi. All types of crazy things. So, the goal is to serve Hashem Barach, the one and only. Now, serving Hashem is no easy business. Serving Hashem means you have to overcome your Yetzirah day and night. You have to be a lion, like it says in this Mishnah. You have to be a lion. What's a lion? lion is someone that is like a lion in battle, overcomes the Yetzirah day and night. And to be this lion, 
There's a time and a place for everything. Sometimes you know the lion needs to rest. Sometimes the lion attacks. He doesn't just attack all the time. Sometimes you see the hyena is messing with him, biting on his feet, biting his tail, running away. Nothing happens. Nothing happens. They bark at him. Nothing happens. A few different things happen. The birds are laying on his head. Doesn't move. Nothing. Then once in a while, he gets up and he starts killing everyone. Got hungry or he wanted to prove a point, whichever came first. Point being is that once in a while he has to be a lion. But a lion of, the, of, 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 a, of Torah has to be a lion all the time. There's no breaks. He has to fight Yetzirah all the time. But the similarity here is that he has to fight him in different ways. Sometimes he has to fight him by being quiet. Sometimes he has to fight by being loud and obnoxious. Sometimes he has to yell, Mi la Hashem elai, whoever is for Hashem is with me. Let's do tshuva. Let's learn Torah. Let's do mitzvot. Let's sanctify Hashem Itbach's name. And sometimes he has to just be quiet because he knows that if he says something, he's going to make things worse. So, every single person that's serving Hashem, really serving Hashem, not serving their ego, needs to see and check, where am I going to be a better servant of Hashem? Where will I be closer to Hashem? Here or in Israel? Here or some other country? Ideally Israel. We all want to go to Israel, right? Where will I be a better servant of Hashem? Now, I, the definition of I, changes as you get older. When you're a young kid, I means you and maybe your toy, that's your imaginary friend. You grow up a little bit, it's you, I means you and a couple of friends that you have because you think that you're going to be best friends forever. Every 10, 12, 13, 15, 16, and 18 year old thinks that their friends today are going to be their friends when they're old. They don't realize that the older you get, the less friends you have. And if you're 60 or 70 years old with even a single friend, you're a very, very fortunate person. The five, six, seven, or ten friends you have as a kid is an optical illusion. It's not reality. Over time, you realize that real friends are hard to get. But eventually, the definition of I changes again. You get married. And if you want to actually have anything remotely close to Shlom Bayit, I has now turned into a family. I means you and your wife, you and your husband. You and your wife and kids. You and your husband and kids. If your I has a different definition, you have no Shlom Bayit in your life. If you're looking to take a vacation separate from your wife, you're supposed to also get a new wife too because you don't want to be married to the one you're with. If you want to go away and hang out with your girlfriends, then you're supposed to get remarried because the husband you have is not the right one apparently. <coughs> if your fun times are with everybody else except your spouse, there's something wrong. But don't think it's going to be answered with a new spouse. I'm not advocating divorce. I'm advocating that you have to work on what your definition of I means. If you want I to work as an adult, you have to look at the picture completely. 
what's good for you can only be good for everyone. It can't be just be good for you. If you like to go to Israel, that's fantastic. It's great. But if going to Israel, it's going to cause your wife or your husband or your kids to suffer, you can't go. If your wife doesn't want to go to Israel, you can't go. It's not that you shouldn't go. You can't go. You're not allowed to go. If your kids are going to go to a worse yeshiva by moving, you can't go. If anyone is going to become less of a servant of Hashem as a result of the move, you cannot go. You're not allowed to go by Allah standards. Can't. So I now has a different meaning. So anyone that thinks that everyone that lives in the exile needs to do aliyah apparently doesn't know the definition of I. Because I means different things to each one of us. Some of us have two kids, some of us have five kids, some of us have one kid, some of us have no kids. The point being is that if you are in a life with a family and your definition of I includes more than a single person, you have to take all of those people as part of the equation. The point being is that you have to look at three major factors. Number one, Will you be more religious in Israel or not? If the answer is you'll be more religious in Israel or at the very least the same, you've passed test number one. Two, will you have shlom bait as a result of going to Israel or will it cause chaos because one of you doesn't want to go? If the answer is yes, it's going to cause shlom bait, it's going to be a good thing, we both want to go, that again, you pass test number two. If one of you doesn't want to go, you've already failed. It doesn't matter what test number three is. You can't pass go. You can't collect $200. If there's shlombite problems, if it's going to cause a divorce or any type of shlombite problems, you cannot go. Can't. Can't put the family on the line to live in the Holy Land at this stage. You just can't. Third, is it going to create panasa problems? Or will you, at the very least, be okay? You don't necessarily need to live like Rockefeller, but will you be able to eat? Will you be able to drink? Standards are slightly different in certain places of Israel. Some are the same, some are, are, are better, some are less. The point being, will you be able to survive financially? If you're going to go there and force your entire family to live off of food stamps when they were all used to eating a uh, delivery meal every day here... You have to make sure they're all ready for it. You can't just force everyone to make sacrifices because you feel like going. Point is, I has a bigger definition than a single person when you're in a Jewish world. So, anyone that says that you you know you can't if you're you can't be righteous without living in Israel, obviously doesn't understand this Mishnah. And the reason why is because Rabbi Matya ben Harash said this Mishnah of dwelling in Israel is equal to all of the mitzvot, when did he say it? He said it when he was leaving Israel. He didn't say it when he was going to Israel. He said it when he was leaving. Obviously, if you weren't able to be righteous as a result of leaving, he wouldn't have left. But he left. He didn't want to leave. He wanted to stay, but he knew that he would actually be a better servant of Hashem outside of the Holy Land, than inside of the Holy Land. And he went to Rome. He went to Rome, and the Gemara Maseret Sanhedrin says he built the Bedin, he was the Av Bedin, 
and it became one of the most important Batet Deens in the world. They say, what's the best Batet Deen in the world? You know, there's plenty of Batet Deen. There's plenty of places that uh, you could practice Jewish law. But wait, what's, uh, what's one that's considered Yafe? Yafe means pretty, but here it's talking about some place that is reputable. A place where you know that there's justice there. There's no nonsense. It's justice, truth, emet. But at the same token, favorable judgment to the righteous party. And they mention a few Batedin, and his Bedin is one of them. So here we see that Rabbi Matya was making a major sacrifice, personal sacrifice, to be an Eved Hashem, and goes to a place full of Tum'ah, Rome. Does anyone know what the Torah says about Rome or Italy? Is a little mystical for some of you that don't like mystical stuff. Close your ears. But anyone that uh, anyone that does, you know, a lot of people ask me about the Zohar because for some reason people have been fooled to think that you could only find mystical Judaism in the Zohar. This couldn't be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, you could probably find more mystical stuff outside of the Zohar than inside the Zohar. In the Gemara, in the uh, Midrashim, and so on. But anyway, in the Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 56, it talks about different sinners, or people that are perceived as sinners, but weren't really sinners. Or maybe they sinned, but not as great as what it's perceived. One of them is Shlomo Melech. Shlomo Melech, as a matter of fact, you probably saw in Gemara Masechet Sanhedrin, the, the, uh, the heads of the Sanhedrin at that time almost included him on a list of he has no share of the world to come. They wanted to do a psak alacha that Shlomo Amelech, Kodesh Kodeshim, wisest man of all time, had literally the wisdom that's one level below God, if that's something that we can even comprehend what that means. He had a flying dove made of gold. There was no... There was no body parts. There was no, like, electron. he had a, a dove, a dove, but it wasn't a real dove, like flesh and blood. It was made out of gold, and it would fly, and it would take his crown and put it on his head. It would obey his commands based on speech. Shlomo Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim. He married a thousand women because he wanted to bring Mashiach. He wanted to make world peace. He said, if I'm married to all of them, they have to be in peace with me. That's world peace. That's one of the nevuot that the Mashiach has to do. He has to make world peace. He didn't want to marry them because of some sick minds that people have today. But the Chachamim were actually debating, does he or does he not have Olam Abba? Does he or does he not have Olam Abba? Because he made something that kind of looked like a sin, something that wasn't exactly the greatest. Says a pasuk on him that he did something that looked evil in the eyes of Hashem. He did something that looked evil in the eyes of Hashem. What was this thing that looked evil in the eyes of Hashem? When he married the daughter of Paro, he married the daughter of Paro. The daughter of Paro wasn't exactly the most righteous person on earth. She didn't do a real conversion. Like she did a conversion, she followed everything. But her neshama never changed. 
Shnei conversion. Kep Shabbat, Tzniyot, everything. But inside, same rotten potato. Same rotten potato, still an idol worshiper. Similar to this person that's trying to lie to me for the last year and a half. You know, people ask me for help for conversion. Baruch Hashem, I try to help people. And it's free. That's the best part about it. It's free. You want to convert? I'll do everything I can to help you for free. No money. Free means no money. Not like free, but you have to give me money anyway. No, free, free, mamash, free. So, the best part of free is that you have to listen to everything that I say because it's free. If you're paying me, then I have to listen to what you say because you're a customer now. But if it's free, you have to do everything I say. Meaning that by the time I bring you to the Bedin, you have to be Shlomo Melech. You have to be Sarai Menu. You have to be Kodesh Kodeshim by the time you get to the, you know, to the Bedin. Last time we went to the Bedin, the Bedin says, this is a model, this is a model Jew, Al-Vayalenu, to have such a thing. They look at the converts I brought to the Bedin. Kodesh Kodeshim, each one of these converts. But by the time they get there, it's Mesirut Nefesh, self-sacrifice. It's not one, two, three. It takes time. Anyway, but sometimes people think that free means worthless. People think that just because you're free, maybe you're an idiot too. So they try to fool me, and they pretend to be righteous. You ever meet those people? They pretend to be righteous. Shlomo Amelech on them says, Al Don't be over-righteous. They pretend to be righteous. You know who pretended to be righteous in the Torah? His father, Gdolado. His grandfather, even bigger. His brother was considered the head of all the Avot. Who is it? Esav. Esav was Tzadik Arbe. Why? He came to, to, to Yitzchak and he says, Abba, how, should I give the Maser also on the salt? You don't have to give this Maser on salt. On the, meaning that he gives Maser on everything else, the last thing he hasn't given Maser on, the tithe, is the salt. Don't pretend to be over-righteous. Some people try to pretend like they're so righteous, they are, their only problem is Lashonara. Their only problem is that they're not sure if there was one hair sticking out of the Kisui Rosh. They're not sure. Maybe it was one hair. I'm rabbi, I'm not sure. Maybe I think, I think, I think one hair was sticking out of the Kisui Rosh. That's your only problem? That's it? Speech, everything is good. Tefillah, everything is good. Shabbat, Kodesh, Kodesh. Everything else is good? Mamash, everything, st- everything, no other problems, they don't have any other problems. Oh, Rabbi, I had a bad thought. I had a bad thought, Rabbi, what should I do? Should I do tshuva? I had a bad thought. The rest of us are thinking, I had a good, one good thought. They had a bad thought, they're telling me they want to do tshuva. Somebody like this, nah, come on, no. You had a bad thought, that's what you want to do tshuva, and you had a bad thought. Really? That's your only problem? You had a bad thought? Who are you fooling? That's, all, that's your only problem. You had one bad thought the whole week. You had one bad thought. You are Shlomo HaMelech and Yosef uh, HaTzadik combined. Sometimes you have over-righteous people. So it's easy to clock them once in a while. They pretend. But they still think you're stupid. So they try to pretend, oh yeah, I watch all your lectures. Oh, which one did you watch? You know, the one you just did. The one you just did. Which one? You know, the one that was like two and a half hours. Like, I don't remember how long my lectures are. Which one? What'd you learn? What'd you learn now? You know, you, you talked about stuff. You know, about Shlomo Melech and... Uh, 
I didn't talk about Shlomo Melech this week. I talked about Shlomo Melech. Little by little, I realized they're not even. Wa- not only they're not watching this lecture, not only they didn't watch this week, they probably have never watched more than one lecture. But they like the price; it's free. But then they realize that they have to become righteous too. You can't just pretend your whole life. So when you ask, start, start asking them questions, are you doing this? Are you doing this? Are you doing this? Sometimes it's trick questions just to see if it's really a, it's a joke or not. You start realizing these people, not only they don't, they don't keep, they don't know anything. You could pretend for so long. So then when they realize that, they start trying to go around you. So one of these fools decided to call a Bedin directly. They called Bedin directly. And uh, they want to say, well, maybe we could skip. Skip me. Skip this one. Skip that one. Let's call the Bedin directly. Hey, how are you? Yeah, yeah, I want to convert. And, and I want fries with that too. I want french fries also. Do you have Coke? Do you have the same price as Rabbi Yaron? Oh, no? It's not, so it's not free also? Okay, whatever. Fine. Okay, when can I come? Hold on one second. What does the Bedin do? They call me. Do you know these people? So they try, they try, they try. Eventually they realize they can't. So what do they do? They lie to their whole families. And tell me, hey, we converted. We went to Florida. We converted. We went to Florida. Because I, you know, I live in Florida. So they say, hey, we went to Florida with Rabbi Yaron. We converted. So the family calls me. So you converted them. Baruch Hashem. They, they said that you converted them. I haven't talked to them in six months. I haven't talked to them in six months. They haven't converted me. And anyway, I don't convert in Florida. What are you talking about? What are these, these people are liars. Composers. Blah, blah, blah. So it blows up in their face. Blows up in their face. But the reality of it is that at the end, it doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you do to me. You can do whatever you want. It doesn't make a difference. There's an eye that's watching. There's an ear that's hearing. There's a hand that's writing everything you're doing. You think you're going to fool the system? Do you realize what's going to happen to you? Do you realize you're going to have kids that think they're Jewish their whole life? One day wake up when they're 18, 19, 20 years old, want to get married. And of course, the world today is digital. Everyone wants to double check everything. They want to double check if the suit you're wearing is even real. Forget about if your Judaism is real. If the suit you're wearing is not real, they're like, hey, don't let them in the synagogue. You know, in yeshivot today, sometimes people are so materialistic. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes so materialistic. Instead of saying hi to each other in yeshivot, they come, hey, hey, what's up, one second. They take the tie and they flip the tie to see what kind of brand the tie is. Oh, Armani. And they start complimenting each other on the ties. Instead of complimenting the guy, Masichet Shabbat, Masichet Sanhedrin, Baruch Hashem, he remembers one page by heart. From the... Where do they compliment? What brand of tie you have? What kind of suit you're wearing? That's the world we live in today. What do you think? The secular people are the only ones that have problems? Sometimes I debate myself, who has more problems, the secular or the religious? I'm not really sure. It's, it's definitely a close match. It's definitely a close match. Sometimes it surprises you. So anyway, they try to fool everyone, but eventually they wake up, the kid's 20 years old, wants to get married, and they find out not only is he not Jewish, but the girl that he's with, or the guy that uh, you know that wants to get married, or whatever it is, 
is not willing to wait another year, two years, or three years for this person to convert. Meaning, you just killed this kid's life. Because now, they thought they're going to get married. They're not going to get married. Now they're alone. Now they go to drugs. Now they become suicidal. Now they want to, like, now that, now that you just destroyed their life. Why? Because you tried to lie to some guy that wanted to give you service for free 20 years ago. You understand? People don't understand the consequence of their actions. Consequence of their actions. This, Mamash, this happened just a few days ago. A few days ago, I get a call. Yeah, yeah, you did the conversion. You did the conversion. What conversion? What are you talking about? Who? I haven't talked to this person in six months, eight months maybe. Last I heard was the Bedin called me, asking me, why does this sound so fishy? So people think that they can fool the system. Anyway, you remember what story we're on, right? Shlomo Melech. We're still on Shlomo Melech, Masechet Shabbat, page 56b. You remember, right? So, Shlomo Melech, Shlomo Melech, Shlomo Melech, Masechet Sanhedrin says, almost lost his Olam Abba. Almost lost his Olam Abba, David Melech came down from Shamaim, begged, begged the Sanhedrin, don't write, my son has no Olam Abba. Don't write it. Because if they write it, in Bet Din of Shamayim, they have to agree. The be- if the Bet Din in, in Lemata signs, Bet Din Shilmala signs. David Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim, Mashiach comes from David Melech, comes to this world. Says, don't write it. David Melech comes to my shiur. I said, whatever you want, David Melech. You want popcorn? We have some popcorn too. Pizza. Sit with us. Whatever you want. You don't have to worry, David Melech. I'll, I'll write the whole thing new if you want. David Melech. They say, listen, we don't listen to David Melech from Olam Abba. What stopped them? Hashem Itbarach. Hashem Itbarach stopped them. Hashem himself stopped them. So anyway, the Gemara Masechet Shabbat says, why? Why, they, why? why was there a safek on Shlomo Amelech? Because one of the women that he married, one, at least one we know of, was the daughter of Paro. Daughter of Paro, the heart... She did the procedure of conversion, perfect, bedin, everything. But inside she was still rotten potatoes. Inside it was a fake conversion. She was still an idol worshiper. And the Gemara says that when Shlomo HaMelech found out that she's still an idol worshiper, she told him, look, on Monday I have this idol, on Tuesday I have this idol, on Wednesday I have this idol. Shlomo HaMelech, Kodesh Kodeshim made a mistake. Of not saying anything. Not saying anything. Kamara says, it was like as if he was an idol worshiper. Why? When you see another sinning and you don't say anything, it's like you sinned. You see a Michalel Shabbat that's connected to you. You see him driving on Shabbat, you don't say anything. You Michalel Shabbat. So what do we do when we have a bunch of people that are Mechalei Shabbat but we're not connected to them? You go to Be Knesset, you got 100 people, sometimes 50 drove to Be Knesset on Shabbat. It's a problem. Sometimes 50 are in Be Knesset, but they're going home to cook on Shabbat. They don't realize you're not allowed to cook on Shabbat. They put the food in the microwave. They don't have a plata. They don't realize, yes, you're supposed to eat hot food on Shabbat, but it has to be heated, has to be maintained heat. You can't cook it. So you have to get a plata. You have to get a hot plate. 
dear friend of mine just did his personal story, Baruch Hashem. His uh, company is called Tech Yid. He made a safe plata, safe hot plate. If you guys remember, about two years ago or so, two, three years ago, a very big disaster happened in New York where a uh, family had a fire and Shem uh, the Sassoon family had a fire and I think it was seven kids died, if I, if I remember uh, correctly. Anyway, this motivated this Ger Tzedek. He's actually a righteous convert. He was an engineer to uh, build a uh, safe plata, safe hot plate. And Baruch Hashem, it's been very successful. Anyway, he just published his uh, personal story, a video about his personal story. Very interesting. Why he converted, different things. So anyway, if you are going to cook your food on Shabbat, that's violation of Shabbat. You have to, the food has to already be ready before Shabbat. Before Shabbat. So some people make a mistake where they like to make chulent, or some people call it uh, chamin. Uh, Ashkenazis call it one day, Safaris call it another. It's in essence, the same thing. And what they do is they make the chulent, or the chamin, two seconds before Shabbat starts. They put all the ingredients, and they let it cook overnight. The problem is that you're not allowed to eat that chamin, because it already has to be ready. Enough ready that it's eatable before Shabbat. Not completely ready, because obviously Khamin improves over time. But it has to be something that you can eat. Digest, you know, it has to be um, um, has to be uh, edible. It has to be edible before Shabbat. So if you're putting all the ingredients, then pressing go five seconds before Shabbat, you can't eat it. Point is, is that on Shabbat you're not allowed to cook, so you have to get a hot plate. On Shabbat, if you want to make tea, you have to use a second kli, meaning you have to put tea, you have to put have a something, an urn, heating your water the whole time. It's not you're not turning anything on. It's already hot the whole time. Maintains the temperature of the water. It's not heating the water. If it's heating the water, it's not kosher. It has to maintain the heat. Maintains the heat. You pour it. You pour just the water into a cup with nothing in it, and then from that cup. You pour it into a cup that has the tea bag in it and the sugar or whatever else you want in it. So in essence, from one kli from the urn to a cup with just uh, with nothing, and then from that cup to a cup with the tea and the sugar. And that's how you make tea on Shabbat. Why? Because if you pour it directly from the urn into the cup that has the tea bag in it, it's a possibility that you're actually cooking the tea bag. So these are little things that don't seem like a big deal. But the big deal is, is that if you do it wrong, no lamaba. Simple, no big deal, no big deal, no lamaba. With the hat, with the beard, and everything else, no lamaba though. Just this world. So these are big things. So you have to learn alachot shabbat. You have to learn alachot shabbat. It's not easy. you make mistakes. You make plenty of mistakes, but at least you're trying. At least you're trying to learn. Good. Eighteen, yeah. Eighteen wives. Also. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. Again, exactly. 
You're right. You're 100% right. No question asked. That's even a bigger problem than why he married Pharaoh's daughter. No. Marrying Pharaoh's daughter or marrying all the daughters is not a problem as long as they convert and they're righteous. But the Pasuk says, the Pasuk specifically says, that what he did was evil in the eyes of Hashem. And the Gemara specifically says, and in Gemara Masechet Shabbat, says, it was better that Shlomo, it was better that the righteous one they call him, they still call him righteous, obviously, it was better that this righteous, this tzaddik, would have been a servant for some idol worshiper his whole life. Servant. No one you ever never heard of him. Nothing. He cleans the horses or something. Servant for an idol worshiper his whole life than such a pasuk, such a verse being written about him. Shlomo Amelech. Why was the verse written about him? Because he did not rebuke. The point I'm trying to make here is that how many disasters do we have to hear about, learn about, and see with our own eyes come as a result of lack of rebuke? Answer, all of them. Every single disaster that has ever happened to Am Yisrael is a result of no rebuke. Every single one, from the beginning of time until the end. Bet HaMikdash number one, Bet HaMikdash number two, the pogroms, the inquisitions, America, Egypt, everything. All of it because of no rebuke. Kamsa Bal Kamsa, of course, right before the Bet HaMikdash. So, the Pshat of this Mishnah is be nice to people. That's the Pshat. That's the basic meaning. Every time Rabbi Matya is saying, initiate hello. You see a person, say hello. Be the one that says hello. Don't wait for people to say hello to you. No, you ever meet those people? Hey, do you, do you see? You see Steve? Yeah, yeah, I saw him. Do you say hi? No, no. I say, why don't you say hi? I don't know. Let them say hi to me. You ever meet one of those people? You ever see those people? They're waiting for everybody else to say hello to them? Like they're uh, Mr. President. Get up. Why didn't you say hello to him? Oh, you didn't say hello to me. So? You didn't learn? We learned from Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan says, they asked Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan, how did you earn the schut to live so many years? How did you learn? What's the schut that you have? To, to, I mean, there's many chachamim. There's many people who learn Torah. There's many people who do mitzvot. What did you do? What's your secret? Tell us the secret, Rabbi Yochanan. He says, there's never been a person that said hi to me before I said hi to them. Even goyim. Even non-Jews. I said hi to them. It's a famous story about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky. I love a shalom. One of the, uh, the yeshiva that he had, there was at one point, there used to be like a church next to it. A covenant, a covenant, a, a um, convent, nuns in there and stuff like that. And uh, one day, one of the uh, nuns comes to one of the other rabbis and uh, she asked the rabbi, why is it that every time somebody from your yeshiva, school, whatever they called it, why is it that every time somebody comes out and they see me or any of the other nuns, 
they run away or they look away, they don't even say hi, except that, that old rabbi, that old man. How come he's the only one that says hello? How come all of you run away from us? How come he's the only one that shows us a kind face? How come? Apparently it's because he's the only one that learned this Mishnah. Rabbi Yochanan told us already in Gemara Maseret Brachot, you want a long life? Say hello to everyone. Be nice to everyone. Show a kind face to everyone. Don't look like it's Tisha B'Av. Just because Tisha B'Av in your life doesn't mean it's everybody else's fault. Just because you're angry and your wife is angry and your kids are angry and everyone's angry does not mean you have to make everyone else suffer because they have to look at your sad face all day. Put a smile on. It's just the opposite of your frown. It's upside down. Put a smile on. Say hello. Don't wait for other people to say hello. Don't wait for other people to say hello. Don't think you're Mr. President. Don't, don't think you're Kvod Arav. Why? Because the real Kvod Arav, Rabbi Yochanan, Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, Rabbi Matya Ben Harash, what are they saying? Sing, say hello. Say hello. What's the big deal? Say hello first. First, say hello. To the nice person, to the ugly person, to whoever, say hello. Kind face. I'm not saying go become a uh, playboy, start saying hello to every single girl that moves. I'm saying kind face. Let's not twist the Torah. Because I know today you have to mamash, be very careful with words you say. So that's the pshat. The pshat is say hello. That's the pshat. But the reality is that Rabbi Matya is not here to tell us to say, say hello. Why? You see from the rest of what he says. He says, be the one that's makdim b'shalom. Be the one that's first to have shalom. Shalom means hello. But also be the tail for lions and the head of foxes. Tail for lions meaning connect to tzaddikim, to chachamim that are higher than you. It's better to be at their tail, behind all of them, trying to just catch up, because they're all smarter than you, they're all more righteous than you. It's better to be at their tail than to be the head of a bunch of reshaim, of a bunch of people who don't know anything. It's better than to be the tail of the chachamim than to be the head of the criminals, the head of the ignorance. Criminal doesn't mean kill people. Criminals can be criminals against Hashem. So how could saying hello be connected to that? Obviously there's a deeper meaning here. Deeper meaning is, the Torah tells us that Hashem Barach has multiple names. 72 names. If you misuse any of them, you have a serious, serious problem. And for all of those ignorance that like to pronounce the name of, that we have in a Torah, that's Yud, Hey, Vav, and Hey, and they want to pronounce it the way it sounds, especially Christians and uh, Messianic Jews, they call themselves, you should know the Torah specifically says anyone that pronounces that name literally has no olamaba. Beginning, middle, end. Keep Shabbat, keep mitzvot, tefillin, Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu Rash, 
whatever anyone that pronounces that name, Yud Hey, Vav and Hey, the way it actually sounds, which I'm sure all of you have seen on the internet, starts with a Y. Anyone that pronounces that name, no ulamaba. They could be kind, precious, whatever. No ulamaba. So there's print plenty of ignorance on the internet. Type it all over their page. They make banners and posters of this. So, one of the many names that Hashem Baruch has is Shalom. Shalom is actually a name of Hashem. So Rabbi Matya is actually telling you something completely different. He's not just telling you be the first one to say hello. He say be a makdim be shalom. Be a one that brings shalom to the relationships. Be the one that brings God into the relationship. Be the one that brings God to people. Go do kiruv. Go help people do tshuva. Go help people learn Torah. Go help people do something that's meaningful in their life, that's connected to Hashem Barach. Because without it, it's all worthless. All the billions the Saudi Arabian princes have is worth nothing right now. It's sitting in jail waiting for their execution. Mark my words, not one of them is going to survive. I don't know who they are, what they did, or anything like that. It's just a reality. That's Hashem giving us a reality. Am Yisrael is getting a reality. All of us that are chasing money every single day, day and night, trying to be one of them. Who doesn't want $50 billion? Raise your hand if you don't want $50 billion. Raise your hand if you don't want $50 billion. Raise, no, two hands, three hands, four hands, five hands. Who doesn't want $50 billion? Huh? Nobody, right? Everyone wants $50 billion. Well, $50 billion right now sitting in jail about to get executed. Hashem is teaching you Musar. He's telling you $50 billion can't save you from Yom Adin. Can't save you from Yom Adin. Can't save you from Yom Adin. When the time comes, it comes. What's going to save you? Mitzvot, Torah, Magdim B'Shalom. Hashem Itbarach is saying, you have to bring him to people. And the reality is, people are scared to do it. People are scared to bring God into their life. And I don't mean into their own personal life. Plenty of people are doing tshuva. Plenty of people are from from birth. Plenty. Plenty of people are religious from birth. Plenty of people have done tshuva ba'uch Hashem. There's many, many more that need to do it. But very, very few, very few, have enough love for Hashem Barach, enough chutzpah to bring Hashem into their real life, meaning to bring it to the world around them. And the reason why is because to be a makdim b'shalom means you have to bring Hashem everywhere, including all the places that don't want Him. What's an example of one of the places that didn't want him? Prophet Jonah, Prophet Yonah. Hashem Barach comes to Yonah Anavi, Prophet. And he says, first verse, 
ויהי דבר אדוני עליונה בין עמיתי לאמור קום לך אל ננווה העיר הגדולה הוקרא עליה כי עלתה רעתם לפניי השם קמס ליונה and he says the following the word of השם קים ליונה son of עמיתי saying arise go to ננווה the great city and call out against her for the wickedness has ascended before me Yona, go rebuke them. Go tell them they're Rishayim. Go tell them they have to do tshuva. Tell them to stop sinning. What does Yona do? Runs away. Doesn't want to do it. Doesn't want to do it. Doesn't want to be the guy that tells people, hey, you got to do tshuva. Doesn't want to do it. Chachamim say, why didn't he want to do it? He says that he knew that Ninveh was full of goyim, And he knew that they're all decent people. And if he tells them the truth, they're going to do tshuva. And that's going to look bad for Am Yisrael that didn't do tshuva yet. He says, send me to Am Yisrael to go, go tell them. But maybe Am Yisrael is already long gone. So he's sending me to the Goyim. So now I'm going to go to the Goyim. I'm going to tell them to go do tshuva. They're going to do tshuva. It's going to make Am Yisrael look even worse. So I'd rather not do it. He runs away. He goes on a boat. Pays full fare. And it specifically says that he pays the full fare just to show us, even though the book of Yonah is very, very small, to show us despite his prophecy, he didn't try to pull any fast ones. He didn't want any special privileges because he was a prophet. Paid full price like everybody else. Paid full price on the, on the boat, but Hashem made the boat start rocking in the middle of the sea. And everyone knows the story of how they threw him off the boat and a big fish ate him. What many people don't know is that before that, what actually happened before it. What happened before it is very, very interesting. All of the people started praying, it says, to their gods. They all, each one of them had a different god. One guy prayed to a shoe, another guy to a snail, another guy to a statue, Another guy to a fish. Everyone had a different God. One God was bought at Kmart. The other one at Costco. The other one at Walmart. Different gods. Some God, he was only a God this week. The other one was God next week. Everyone had a different God. Start praying to him too. Because the boat was rocking and they're all scared they're going to die. What does Yonah do? Yonah goes to sleep. The boat's shaking. It's about to collapse. They're all about to drown. Yonah goes, goes to sleep. So he goes to sleep. So the captain of the ship says, what are you doing? How could you be sleeping? Who are you? He says, I'm a Hebrew, I'm a Jew, and I fear Hashem. The God of the heavens who made the sea and the dry land. And the very next verse says, and the men were frightened with great fear. Immediately after he told me he's a Jew, they all got scared. Petrified. Why? Because you also told them, you also told them something else. He says, I know that it's because of me. Everything that's happening here, you're all being punished. You're all getting, this boat is about to collapse. It's all because of me. For I know it's because of me. Ki ani ki It's my fault. My fault. Why my fault? Hashem sent me to go rebuke a bunch of people. I didn't want to do it. 
if you want to stop, you want the whole thing to stop, throw me overboard. Throw me into the ocean, it's all going to stop. They threw him overboard, it stopped. How many of us are willing to admit, like you now, I know it's my fault. Everyone always says, oh, did you hear about terrorist attack? This Jew died, and this Jew is suffering, and the war is here, and the war is there, and everyone wants to kill us. Don't you think it's all, it's, it's all because of the Mechaleh Shabbat, all the people that drive on Shabbat, maybe? All the people that are idol worshippers? Oh, look what happened, another shooting. Another shooting. In America, it's become a weekly thing. Another guy kills almost 30 people. Though it's because they're all idol worshippers, right? They're all in the church. Oh, look, there's a terrorist attack in New York. It's because they're all immodest, right? They're all immodest. That's why it happened. So people think. Look, all these uh, kids are going off to Derech. They're not, they're, they're, they're modern Orthodox now. They don't really want to be really religious. They want to be like half religious. Like sometimes religious. Like religious at home. Religious like when no one can see them. When they're in bed, sleeping, they're religious. But in the outside world, they're not so religious. It's modern. Religious when they're in Beknesset, but not outside of the Beknesset. So it's, it's, because, it's because of the TV, right? It's because of the colleges, right? No. The answer is no to all of them. It's not because of the colleges. It's not because of the TV. It's not because, obviously all of these things contribute. Don't get me wrong, they're all terrible. There's one is Satan, one is Malach Hamavit, one is Yetzirah, one is Ra. Each one is a different servant of Yetzirah. But it's not the fault. The shooting, terrorism, the sickness, the disasters, is a single cause to all of it. A single cause that has been torturing us since the beginning of time. The Gemara Masechet Shabbat 54 says, Why did Hashem destroy the Bet HaMikdash? Why? There was no more Anshei Emuna. What's Anshei Emuna? There was no more men of faith. What does it mean, men of faith? What, nobody believed in God? Plenty of people believed in God. It was the Tzadikim. Plenty of people, Shabbat, Kosher, everything they were keeping. Learned Torah all day, day and night. No, no. Anshei Emuna Avadu. No more Anshei Emuna. What's Anshei Emuna? People that really believe in Hashem to such a point, they're willing to fight for Him. Meaning, they see Mechal Shabbat, they say something. They see someone that's violating Shem Hashem, they say something. When Hashem saw there's no more people, there's no more people to rebuke, He says, okay, there's no hope, no one's going to do tshuva. There's no one's going to do tshuva without rebuke. There's no tshuva without rebuke. He decided, okay, I have to destroy Bet HaMikdash. Initially, He wanted to save the tzaddikim. He wanted to save the people that learn Torah, keep Shabbat, keep mitzvot, Rabbis. But the Gemara says it's the first and only time Hashem changed a positive degree into a negative one. 
the first and only time in history since the beginning of creation, Hashem changed a positive decree into a negative one. Sometimes He changes a negative one into a positive one. But never in history did He change a positive into a negative, except this once. Initially, the plan was to actually save the tzaddikim. Save the ones that learned Torah. But the Midat din the, the uh, Malach that's in charge of the rebuke, of, uh, of the din of the judgment, came to Hashem and says, wait a minute, why are you, why are you killing them? You're killing them because of Mechalel Shabbat. You're destroying the Beit HaMikdash because of Mechalel Shabbat. They're Mechalel Shabbat. They're Mechalel Shabbat. They're both Mechalel Shabbat. So no. These are tzaddikim gmurim. These people did the whole Torah. They followed the entire Torah from Aleph Ataf. Every mitzvah they did. Every mitzvah they did. More mitzvah than us because that's better mikdash. Every mitzvah from Aleph Ataf, they did all the mitzvot. It says, yeah, but they saw the Mechalel Shabbat didn't say nothing. And your judgment says that if you don't do anything, it's like you took on the sin yourself. Hashem Itbarach says, punish them first. Not only punish them. Not only they're no longer saved, punish them first. Punish them first. Not saying anything has been the root of all of our problems. Running away from Musar, running away from Yirat Shamaim and lessons about Yirat Shamaim, running away from telling the world the truth, has been the root of our problems. The problem is not the secular world. The problem is not the TV. The problem is not the immodesty. It's all a problem. But it's not the problem. The problem is that those that are in She'emunah disappeared. Those that actually know something don't want to share it. The ones that read Gemara, the same Gemara I'm reading to you guys, same Gemara. It's not, I don't have a different Gemara. It's not like Mount Sinai for me, Mount Sinai for everyone else. Same Gemara, same Masechet Shabbat, you should finish Masechet uh, Sanhedrin. Did I quote anything else that wasn't on it? It's much worse than what I say. Much worse than what I say. Certain Gemara, I don't even say to you guys, it's too much. I look at it and I want to start crying, I want to leave. If you knew the whole truth, it's depressing. Because you're looking at the world, you're looking at what we have, you're like, how, you need a miracle. You need five Mashiachs. So at least you can save, one of them is going to save the other four because there's no one else to save. Why? Because the people that know the truth, the people that are learning Torah all day, I don't know who they're sharing it with, but it's not, at, it's not the world at large. It's not being shared among the world at large. There's only a few here and there, tzaddikim, that are sharing the truth. Few, very few. But the world at large, you have yeshivot, kolas, full of people. Not one of them is teaching the truth. Full of people. So of course the guy is going to stay secular. Of course the guy is going to stay atheist. Of course he's going to continue wearing a skirt that doesn't even cover the, the, uh, the, the, just the, the underwear line. Forget the knees. Of course she's going to wear a tank top all day. Of course she's not going to cover her hair. Of course she's not going to be modest. Of course she's going to continue stealing. Of course the world at large is going to be an, full of idol worshippers. 
Of course people are going to continue sinning. No one's telling them to do anything otherwise. No one's telling hey, by the way, you're an idol worshiper. God's going to punish you. No one's telling them that. And by no one, I don't literally mean no one. I mean very few in comparison. Of course, there's a few tzaddikim in the world that are doing it. The point being is that each one of us has to take it upon ourselves to become magdim b'shalom. Start bringing Hashem to people's life, but the only Hashem that's real. Not the one that we made up in this politically correct world. Where He's always nice and He never punishes. He always gives and He never takes. It's not real. It's not real. We hear that Rabbi Akiva had 24,000 students. And every year we hear the same story of how they all died in a plague a very short period of time because they did not respect each other. Now obviously each one of them was a Tana, meaning that he knew enough Kedusha, enough Torah, and he was holy enough, holy enough, to revive the dead. Revive the dead. But yet, it says that he didn't respect another Tana? doesn't make any sense. The literal meaning of it doesn't make any sense. What do you mean? You were holy enough to revive the dead, but you didn't know basic etiquette to respect another person? doesn't make any sense. That's because it's not true. It's not literal. The basic respect that Chazal is referring to is respect enough for another person to tell them when they're wrong. Respect meaning you care about them. You care about his neshama. You care about his success. You care about his future. You care about his olam haba. You care about his relationship with shalom, with Hashem barach. You care about it enough to tell him, hey, by the way, make a right, you're going the wrong direction. You know that psak halacha you just made? It's wrong. You know what you're doing? It's wrong. Respect meaning care enough about them to tell them the truth. Each one of them had a lot of respect for each other. But so much respect that they figured, ah, he's going to figure it out on his own. Ah, he's going to discover the truth at some point on his own. He's a smart guy. She's a nice person. She, her father's a rabbi. She'll figure out that she's not allowed to go out with a non-Jew at some point. He'll figure out that he needs to do tshuva at some point. He's not allowed to drive on Shabbos. He'll figure it out at some point. Okay, he's only 20. He's only 20 years old. Eventually he'll do tshuva. What if he doesn't? What if he dies at 21? Are you going to still say it? When he comes to you in your dreams, cursing you out because you didn't tell him about Shabbat, because you didn't tell him about kosher, because you didn't tell him to leave the goya, because you didn't tell him to stop eating taref. What if he doesn't make it to 120 like your Yetzirah is telling you in your mind? You're still going to tell that to yourself? Respect doesn't mean stand up every time you see the guy. 
Respect doesn't mean shake his hand. Respect doesn't mean call him Kvod Arav. Respect means you care about his eternity. Enough to tell him when you see he's going wrong. Not telling each other when we're going wrong has been the root of our problem. Now, of course, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. If you're connected to someone in some way or another, family, friend, acquaintance, you have to be clever and use that imagination that Hashem Ibarach gave you and every single skill set that He gave you, whether it be speech, vision, hearing, understanding, breaking down complex issues into simple formulas, math, science, I don't care what it is. Use whatever God-given talent you have to get him to keep Shabbat. If you have to start dancing for him, dance. Just get him to keep Shabbat for heaven's sake. If you have to start learning an extra Gemara a month just so he keeps Shabbat, learn it. Do whatever you have to do. Just get him to do it. If you have the ability to speak, speak. Stop being so quiet. Everybody all of a sudden is Mr. Shai. Everyone doesn't know how to speak. But when it comes to asking for money, everyone has a big speech. They talk to Hashem all day. Hashem, give me a million dollars. Hashem, give me two million dollars. You know what? The first million and the second million, that's just a down payment, Hashem. You know. For Hashem, we have a lot of requests. We don't stop talking to Hashem with the requests we have. But what about His children? Why can't we say a few things to them? Why can't we say, listen, by the way, you're going the wrong direction. You know, what you're doing to your customers, overcharging them, or stealing from them, or not giving them good service, or yelling at them, or cursing them, or talking behind their back, or selling their information, or whatever it is, everything you're doing, by the way, you can't do it. You can't do it. You're going to lose your olam Say something. If you can't say it, get somebody else to say it. Do something, for heaven's sake. Do something. Something. Don't just sit there collecting dust all day. Because Amisa is suffering. Everyone's suffering. The Goim are suffering. The Jews are suffering. The seculars are suffering. The religious are suffering. Everyone is suffering. Everyone. There's not a soul that I know. There's not a soul that exists that's not suffering. And they're all suffering because of the same thing. Mashiach hasn't come. The reason why is because who's he going to save? Who's he going to save? Bemet, if you really think about it, right now, Mashiach shows up. Who's he going to save? What, the five people that are rebuking the local community in each community? Who's he going to save? The local Chabad house that uh, tells people that the Rebbe is God? Who's he going to save? The other different forms of chasidut that are telling people that their rabbi is God? Or the idol worshippers that are still praying to J.C. Penny? Or the Muslims that are killing anyone that doesn't do whatever they want, even if they're Muslim? Who's he going to save? Who's he going to save? The Jews that don't want to be Jews? The self-hating Jews? The lefty Jews? Or the religious Jews that don't really want to be religious. You know how many religious Jews I know that are dating non-Jews? Religious Jews. We're not talking about the, the non-religious Jews. Non-religious Jews being with non-Jews. It's normal. Why? They see themselves as the same. I know that before I did tshuva, if anyone would have dared telling me, hey, by the way, 
you know, you shouldn't be with a non-Jew. I would have tore him a new one. Why? Who are you to tell me anything? You, you do what it says in the Torah? Didn't you just eat at a non-kosher place? Didn't you drive on Shabbat? Didn't you? Who are you to tell me anything? Is your wife better than mine? Your wife can't even look at the feet of mine. Is, is your wife willing to do what my wife did? What are you talking about? Who are you? Who are you to tell me anything? Before you know, there's nothing wrong with it. Once you know, you realize everything's wrong with it. Unfortunately, even in the religious world, the religious world, the non-religious world, for them to have intermarriage is very normal. It's very normal for a non-religious person to be intermarried. Men, you know, women, it doesn't make a difference. It's very, very normal. Why? If they're not religious, that means they want to be part of the world, not part of Am Yisrael. So for them to be with a non-Jew, it's, it's very normal. So what's wrong with them? Why, are you racist? What do you... Uh, Think you're better than them? They're smarter than you. They're richer than you. They're, what, what makes you better than them? So if you're not religious, it's very normal to be intermarried. And that's what people think is the big root of the problem. It's not. The non-religious mentality is not the problem. It's the religious mentality that's the problem. It's all of those religious people that really don't want to be religious. It's the modern orthodox mentality. Not modern orthodox per se. I don't really care for any particular movement. Not chassidut, not orthodox, modern orthodox. I care about Torah. If it's Torah, it's good. If it's not, then it's not good. I don't care what you call your movement. Point is, is it Judaism or not? There's plenty of Haredim that are not even good enough to be human beings. And there's plenty of secular people that are the greatest people on earth. They just don't know what the purpose of life is. There's good people in every camp. The point is not which camp you're in. The point is, is if you're living a fake life or not. Are you a faker or are you really a serious person that's looking for an actual purpose in life? And the problem is that many people that pretend to be religious don't want to be religious. They're just religious because their father and their mother are religious. The community is religious. They're used to it. You know, it's just like when you go to Africa. You see a bunch of people walking around with underwear. They're used to walking around with underwear. There's nothing wrong with it. For them, there's nothing wrong with it. You, that you came there with a three-piece suit. There's something wrong with you. It's hot. Why are you wearing a three-piece suit? What's wrong with you? To them, you're abnormal. Sometimes that's the religious Jews. They just put a uniform on. It's time to forget about just the uniform. It's time to start worrying about what's inside. And unfortunately, not enough people worry about the inside to get to such an extent that religious Jews come to me, tell me, I have a problem. I'm thinking, oh, maybe he doesn't have enough Yerat Shemaim. Maybe he needs to learn more Musar. Uh, maybe his Shabbat is not that good. Maybe uh, he forgot a few halachot. Maybe he needs a Chavuta that, uh, for, 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 for Gemara. What could be, possibly be the problem of a religious person, especially religious from birth? The last thing on the list that I could ever imagine, if you would have asked me this when I first started this whole thing a few years ago, if you would have told me, what do you think is the only thing you're never going to see? This would be it. 
Religious people tell me I have a problem. What's your problem? Uh, I'm going out with a non-Jew. Wait a minute, but you go to shul every day. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you wear a kippah. Yeah, of course. You have a hat. Yeah, beard. Yeah, the uniform. Tight. It's a great uniform. I go to kolel. I go to yeshiva. I'm part of the vad. I'm part... Religious people. Religious. We're not talking about like sometimes religious. I'm going out with a non-Jew. Or vice versa, religious woman with a non-Jewish man. Oh, I thought this, I thought that. You know how many of this I have? It's not one, two. Happens. Why? Inside. Inside something's wrong. Why is inside something's wrong? No one ever told them there's anything wrong. All of those rebukers, all of those people that have the information, the Ba'alei Munah, those people that actually have the truth, never told them, never shared it. Stingy with information. You see what it says in the Gemara? How come you didn't share with anybody? Why don't you tell people it says, Mechalel Shabbat Mot Yumat? Oh, because there's a few opinions. No, there isn't. There's one opinion. Mechalel Shabbat Mot Yumat. One opinion. God's opinion. There's no second opinion. The only debate is if he dies now or he dies later. Either way, he dies. In a really, really horrible death. Why don't you tell him that? Oh, but you know, it's saying people are not going to come then. Well, I'm not coming then. Better they don't come and think that they're cows than thinking that they're righteous and come. Living a lie their whole life. Do something. People are paying you for it. Be a magdim b'shalom. Be a magdim b'shalom. Be a magdim b'shalom. All of our problems are because no one wants to be a magdim b'shalom. No one wants to do kiruv. No one wants to tell people the truth. It's causing us all the problems. Now, We'll finish off with a couple of points. In this week's parasha, we see that Sarai Menu dies and Avraham Avinu does not does not hold back. His love for her was immeasurable. But he kept his feelings hidden. That's why it says, Velif uh, Chota, when he cries, the, the, uh, the kaf on that word uh, is uh, small. Small kaf. So Chazal explains to us is that he kept his feelings private. Even though he suffered and it was awful and so on, and it's painful, immeasurable amount of pain, he concealed his pain and he moved on. Why? Because Shalom, people start asking, why did God do this to Avraham Avinu? Shalom, Hashem's name gets desecrated. Because Avraham Avinu was the ultimate Magdim B'Shalom, was the ultimate marketing company for Hashem Barach. So Shalom, is he going to ruin it all because people are going to start asking God questions. Why did bad things happen to a righteous person? But after this, we learn about the Ma'arat HaMachpelah, that Avram wants to buy Ma'arat HaMachpelah, doesn't care the price, even though he gets ripped off by this Rasha. Point is, he still buys it, no questions asked, no negotiations, no nothing. Now the uh, Midrash, Bereshit Rabbah, and also Ma'am Loez, says that Avram Avinu 
learned about Ma'arat HaMachpelah when the angels came to him almost 40 years before this parasha. When the angels came to him and told him and Sarai Menu that they're going to have Yitzchak, they're going to have a son, right after his Brit Milah, when he was preparing food for them, uh, he was trying to get the, uh, the calves, and one of the calves ran away. So he chased him, and he chased him into Ma'arat HaMachpelah, into the cave of Ma'achpelah. And as soon as he came in, apparently he saw some type of ruach or some type of sign or something, some type of spiritual sign that told him that Adam Arishon and Chava, Adam and Eve, are buried in this cave. They're buried in this cave. So from that moment on, he, uh, he prayed in Ma'arat HaMachpelah every day. He prayed Shachrit in Ma'arat HaMachpelah every single day. So he knew that eventually... When he or Sarai Menu die, he wants to own this Ma'ara. He wants to own this cave. And uh, he wants to be buried there. And he wants to bury Sarai Menu in there. So the question is, why do you want to get buried next to them? Why do, you get, why do people want to get buried next to other righteous people? So first and foremost, you should know, you're not allowed to bury a righteous person next to a regular person, or you are, worse yet, a wicked person. You're not allowed to bury them. Uh, unlike unlike a, uh, the, uh, the goyim and their idol worship, Am Yisrael does not need to be alive in order to perform miracles. If you look in the uh, book of Kings 2, chapter 13, verse 20, it says when Elisha the Navi, Elisha the prophet, died, says in chapter in uh, verse 20 and Elisha died and they buried him so he died and it says and it happened that the troops of Moab Moab Goim troops of Moab would come into the land at the start of the year every year they would come it says some people were burying a man there was a war somebody died they would bury people and anyway some people were burying a man at this time and just then they saw that the troop coming, they saw that other people are coming to fight them or whatever, so they didn't think about it twice, they threw the body into the uh, hole, and uh, were ready to get out of there. Not realizing that they just buried this person right next to Elisha Navi, Elisha the prophet. And the body touched the bones of Elisha the prophet, and immediately came back to life. So Elisha didn't have to be alive to bring back the dead. Even as a dead person, he brought back the dead. So being buried next to righteous people is a big deal. Plenty of stories from the Tzipuret Sadiqim of being buried next to righteous people or some people make too much of a big deal out of it where to the point where they've turned some of these graves into idol worship. This is Chaval. This is really a desecration of Hashem's name and also desecration of the Tzadikim. Well, you have some people that they, you know, graves, you want to go pray there to Hashem, you're allowed, even though the Rambam says you shouldn't go to any grave. The Rambam says you shouldn't go to any grave, but there are certain places in the Gemara that says there's a certain merit to going to the graves of the Tzadikim if you pray to God in those graves. The problem today is that I don't think most people know the difference. And they go to many of these graves, whether it's, be, it's the oil of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in New York, or it's uh, Rabbi Nachman from Breslev, or it's other tzaddikim. 
they go to these graves and they pray to the tzaddikim, which in essence is 100% idol worship. Meaning, instead of them getting a merit in Shemaim, instead of them getting a mitzvah, instead of them getting a share of the world to come, instead of them getting any assistance, instead of them getting anything any good, they have just officially ruined their olam haba. Their olam haba, every moment they're in this grave, every moment they're in this oil, every moment they're in uh, wherever it is, in, uh, in uh, Uman, or in New York, or in Israel, or wherever grave the grave is, Instead of them getting a share of the world to come, right now it's like some crazy person pressing the atomic bomb over and over in their own olamaba. Boom, 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 boom. And each time they're pressing, there's another missile coming to them. And they don't realize it's about to all hit them at the same time. Why? Because they're praying to the Rebbe. They're praying to Rabbi Nachman. They're praying to Rabbi Shimon. They're praying to Eliyahu Navi. They're praying to whoever they're praying. They're making a mistake. They're making a very, very big mistake. Now the Gemara in Masechet Moed Katan, page 25a, has an interesting thing to say about burying. It says when Rabbi Huna, Rabbi Huna died, the sages, the Chachamim, said, where are we going to bury him? Where are we going to bury Rabbi Huna? Why? We ran out of space in the world. They don't know where to bury him. We ran out of space. No. Said, so where are we going to bury him? Meaning, who has the merit to reside next to him? Meaning, what other? It has to be. He can't be buried next to some nobody. He has to be buried next to someone that's a big tzaddik. Who has the merit? Now, there's many tzaddikim in those days. Why is it saying the story about him and not about every single person in the Gemara? It says, because Rabbi Huna can only be buried next to Rabbi Chia. Why can he only be buried next to Rabbi Chia? Because Rabbi Huna did Kiruv. And Rabbi Chia also did Kiruv. And the only, Rabbi, Rabbi Chia is the only one that has the merit that Rabbi Huna will be buried next to him. Why? Different level. Plenty of people learned Torah. Plenty of people gave tzedakah. Plenty of people did tshuva. Plenty of righteous people in the Gemara. We're not talking about today's world. Talk about the days of the Gemara. Tzadikim, Kodesh Kodeshim. They said, no, 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 no. Even then, if you did Kiruv, he went and disseminated Torah to, to the average folks. Someone that went out there and made sure that the Torah is not forgotten by the ignorance has to be a special person buried next to him. So they said, okay, we're going to bury him in the cave where Rabbi Chia and his two sons are buried. Who has the merit, who has the schut, enough schut to actually go bury him now? Can't be just anybody ordinary burying them. Why? Because Rabbi Huna wasn't just some average guy. Rabbi Huna in the Gemara Masechet Beitzah it says that uh, one time somebody came to Rabbi Huna and asked him a question. Asked him a question. And he says, to, instead of answering the question, he says, hey, isn't that a bird? And he ran away, like walked away. So his son comes to Rabbi Huna. He says, Abba, isn't that Abba? 
Isn't that a big tzaddik you always told me about? I just asked you a question. Why did you do that? He asked you a question. You know the answer. Not like he doesn't know the answer. It's Rabbi Gdol Adol. Why did you answer? Why did you tell him, go look for a bird? What kind of answer is that? He says, is it my fault that I gave so many lectures over the Chag that if I don't eat any second, I'm going to die? He did so much Kiruv, he got to a point where Mamash, his life was on the line. If he didn't eat the next moment, he was going to die. He says, and his question required some explanation. I don't have the energy right now. I need to eat, I'm going to die. That's the level of Kiruv that Rabbi Huna did. This whole section, by the way, has nothing to do with you guys. It's all had to do with me. I have to do more Kiruv. This whole thing is rebuke for myself, by the way. My wife, God bless her, she told me, I think you need to do more. I said, I barely see you already. So anyway, so Rabbi Huna, someone said, who's, who's going to bury him? So one of the uh, young students said, I'll bury him. I'll bury him. Strong, tzaddik, go to the cave. He goes into the cave. As soon as he gets to the cave with Rabbi Huna, he sees the Rabbi Chia is buried there, his two sons, but he sees their image, whatever that is, of the two sons talking to each other, and the older son saying to the younger son, No, move! It's not right for Rabbi Huna to wait. Move out of the way, let him be buried in your spot. And he got upset and fire came out and the little tzaddik that thought he had the merit to bury him ran away. So the Gemara, mystical stuff. People think there's only mystical stuff in some books that no one knows how to read. There's plenty of this stuff in the Gemara. The point I'm trying to make is that in the world of Kiruv, the beauty is, is that all of you can do it. Every single person here can do it. Everyone in their own way. Every single person watching can do it. Every single person alive can do it. Jew, non-Jew, tall, short, male, female, whatever. Everyone can be a part of it in one way or another. Most people, part of it with money. They donate to Kiruv organizations, people that actually do Kiruv. Not just say they do Kiruv. People that actually save souls. Get them to Hashem, not to some uh, idol worship. That's one. Another way is take these lectures and spread them. Send them in a text message to people. Send them on Facebook. Send them, if you're already on social media, do it. Put it out there. Also, another Baruch Hashem, another major announcement is that right now, for anyone, I'm not telling anyone to get a TV, but if you already have one and you're not ready to get rid of it, then you can also watch our lectures now officially on Roku. Roku now has a channel called Bezrat Hashem. And you can see all of our lectures over there. Baruch Hashem, they get updated every time we have a lecture. So now, Bezad Hashem, Baruch Hashem, has a TV station. If you're already on it, at least you have Torah there too. You have it on the internet. You have it on TV. Baruch Hashem, we also have a brand new website. Plenty of lectures on the website. Plenty of movies. Plenty of material. Take all of it. It's Mamash making it easy for you to do Kiruv. Take the links. Take the websites, share it. If you have people that have money, help them by helping them donate. Help them by helping them watch the stuff. Bring them to the lectures. 
do something. Something. Tell people to stop being violators of Shabbat. Tell people to stop being idol worshippers. If you're connected to them. If you're not connected to them, then get to somebody that is connected to them. So to answer the question of what happens when you see a bunch of people that are violators of Shabbat, they're ruining your Shabbat, and the reality of it is that the rebuke is more on you than it is on them. And the reason is, is because instead of being upset that they're mechaleh Shabbat and they're ruining your Shabbat, you should be upset that they're not keeping Shabbat for their own souls. It's like seeing your own brother or sister commit suicide. How would you feel about it? If you saw your brother or sister, son, daughter, mother or father, jump off a bridge, would you feel upset about it? That they ruined your day? You're not sad. You're not sad. What you're doing is you're trying to do something about it. You're not sad when you see Mechalil Shabbat. You're not sad when you see uh, you know, people going against Hashem if you're doing something about it. You should only be sad if you're not doing anything about it. So doing something about it involves a lot of things. What you can do is already start planning. Okay, I don't know this person, but what I'm going to do, I'm gonna, I know their friend. I'm going to talk to their friend to ask him to introduce me so I can talk to this friend. So eventually, in a week, two, three, or four, five weeks, I'm going to tell them, by the way, you can't drive on Shabbat. So you can't tell them right this second, but you're using your clever mind that Hashem gave you to get to know them, not because you want another friend in your life. Who has, fr- who has friends? Who has time for friends? But you should know in the Gemara, it says Rabbi Zera. Rabbi Zera became friends with a bunch of criminals. One day, one of the Tanaim, one of the Kodesh Kodeshim, became friends with a bunch of criminals. And everyone said, what are you doing? Kodesh Kodeshim, friends with all these criminals? But I'm doing Kiruv. And I get them all do Tshuva. One day he died. And the criminals said to themselves, the ones that were still 50-50, they said, listen, when Rabbi Zera was alive, at least somebody was praying for us. Somebody was praying for us. Who's going to pray for us now? We have to do tshuva 100%. All of them did tshuva. So we're not telling you to go make friends and go make parties because you need to socialize. But if you're already out there, you're part of a community, become friends with people you can help. Bring them to a lecture. Give them a CD. Arrange a lecture at the Bet Knesset. Arrange a lecture at the Bet Knesset. Arrange a lecture at your house. Arrange a lecture at a local place somewhere. Do something. And I'll make it even easier for you. Because my wife, God bless her, she's a so I have to listen to her. She says I have to do more Kiruv. So I'm going to do, I'll make a deal with you. If you can get 50 people, 50 people, you get 50 people, I'll go anywhere. Free. No price. Only price you have to pay is whatever it costs me to get there. If it's, let's say I have to fly to California, just pay my flight. If it's New York, just pay my flight. I have family that lives in most places. Other than that, it's free. No charge for the lectures. You don't have to sponsor anything. Just get 50 people. Get 50 people, I'll come. If it's local, if it's Florida, I'd be happy to. At 3 o'clock in the morning, I'll come. Just get the people. Get, don't get three people. They're bored and they're drinking coffee and smoking uh, uh, a marijuana and they want to listen to somebody because they're high. Get, if you get people that are willing to listen, that are willing to you know, do something, at least be receptive, I'll come. Free. You don't have to worry about money now. You don't have to worry about, oh, it was a $1,500, was it $15,000, was it $15 million? It's nothing. It's free. Just get the people. People spend fortunes 
promoting events for no reason. Promoting events for grand opening of a salon, grand opening of a new car lot, grand opening of whatever it is. They spent 10000 10, 20000 just promoting an event for no reason whatsoever. You want to spend a few dollars? Promote an event. Get 50 people, get 100 people, get 200 people to come to a certain business. It. That's the only money you have to spend. Because for me, I'm just going to come there and talk. Anyone wants to donate? Don't want to donate? No problem. But you have at least half the battle. All you have to do is get people. Get people. And the reason why I say 50 is because if I tell you there's no limit, then I know that I'm going to get 5 million phone calls tomorrow. With There's one guy here in the middle of Africa. There's three people in uh, Kuwait. There's six people in New York under the bridge. There's one guy tweaking. And, uh, and uh, we don't really know where he is, but uh, it looks like he's interested. You know, like, you have to, mamash, you have to be serious. You have to get a certain amount of people. If it's really, really close, then maybe even less. But the point being is that if I'm traveling, it has to be more. Point is, is that you don't have to worry about money. You could literally do Kiru for free. Free. Get the speaker, get everything free. Most places you can get for free. As far as, look, this place, we don't pay for it. Oh, Hashem. They're kind enough to give us this place to uh, give a lecture every week for free. You want to get 50 people next week? You're going to have 500 people next week? Fill up places. So the, the biggest battle that people have with Kiruv, usually the Satan tells them, listen, you can't afford to do Kiruv. You can only do Kiruv once you're rich. You know, go make a few million dollars in your business, then you can do Kiruv. You'll open a yeshiva, you'll open a kolel, you'll sponsor 50 million CDs. Everyone that doesn't have a CD player, you'll buy them a CD player too. People, the Satan convinces us that we need money to do Kiruv. You can do Kiruv for free. You're already on the internet. Instead of looking at ducks crossing the road, take a link, share it on one of the social media websites that you're already on. You have a few bucks, sponsor some CDs, send them to people. I'll send them to people. You don't have any money and you don't have the internet? Great. You have, you have a mouth? Okay, get your local community. Tell them, hey, by the way, show up here at 8 o'clock. Why? Something really interesting. Get 50 people to show up or more, I'll be there. That's it. Listen, in the business world, I cost $3,000 an hour. $3,200 an hour in the business world. So you could feel, you could feel special. I'm spending five, six hours for you for free. So it's about, you know, $15,000, $16,000 for free. Why? Cube. And I have to listen to my wife. So, Bezat Hashem, Rabbi Matya gave us a lot of musal today. Rabbi Matya told us, yes, you could be nice to people. You could say hello to people. That's not going to help them. It's not going to help them. What's going to help them is if you're Magdim B'Shalom. You bring them God. You bring God to them, that's going to help them. If you bring God to them, then you'll understand the rest of this Mishnah that says that it's better to be at the tail of the lions of the tzaddikim than at the head of the reshaim. But if you're still thinking it's just hello, you have no idea what the rest of this Mishnah means. What does a fox have to do with the lion? Maybe the lion's going to eat the fox. Maybe the fox is going to fool the lion. What does it have to do with anything? Why? It has nothing to do with hello. It has to do with God. Bring God to people. Bring the truth to them. Because as long as there's no one out there that's bringing the truth to people... We're going to continue suffering. The disaster that's happening in Saudi Arabia, 
will spread to more places. The terrorism that is in America will spread to more places. The anti-Semitism that's all over the world will spread to more places. Things will get worse until we do something about it. Be'ezrat Hashem, Rabbi Matya gave us enough information to encourage us, to push us, to do something about it. You want to continue chasing Bitcoins? Enjoy! Eventually it's going to be all worthless. You want to continue focusing your entire life chasing money, chasing material, chasing all this stuff that you can't do anything about? Fine! It's all going to be worthless eventually. All of it's going to be worthless. The only thing you're going to have is they're going to ask you, how many souls did you save? How many souls did you save? When Amisai left Egypt, only 20% survived. Some say much less. Some actually say it's less than 1% of Amisai survived Egypt. The rest of them didn't want to do tshuva. Hashem killed all of them. The prophets say that at the end of times, it's going to be a repeat a repeat of Egypt, meaning the same thing happened that in Egypt is going to happen again. So some are saying that just as there was few that survived the Exodus, meaning only 20% or less survived the Exodus, only 20% or less are going to survive when the Mashiach comes. Which means that when the Mashiach comes, it's going to be very interesting if you were responsible for anyone surviving. Because not many will survive. So it's going to be very, very precious. It's a very precious commodity if you can say, Hey, Mashiach, listen, my Shabbat wasn't the greatest. My mitzvot weren't the greatest. I wasn't the biggest Talmud Chacham. I was really trying, but I didn't get there yet. But by the way, you see those 500 people? Do I need to say? Do I really need to say who did it? And he's going to tell you, no, you don't. You don't. You don't need to say. I know. Why? Because he could, he could see your Yirat Shemaim. You don't need to be the biggest Talmud Chacham. You don't need to be a rabbi. You don't need to be a speaker. You don't need to be anything. All you need to be is have a heart. Be a Magdim Shalom. Be a Magdim Shalom. Bring Hashem to people. Bring Hashem to people. Any questions? Gonna tra- teach what? Arabic. Arabic. Okay, so though. What's wrong with that? It's a, it's a secular school. It's not a it's not a yeshiva. It's no less ridiculous. It's no less. Re- it's no. No, it's not. It's not. Mo- First of all, you have to know that Arabic is like Spanish in America. So every school, every public school, teaches Spanish in America. Uh, same thing in Israel, pretty much Arabic is probably more people speak Arabic per capita in Israel than people speak Spanish in America. So Arabic is very much a second language in Israel. But it's not really ridiculous that they're going to teach Arabic because first of all, most of the kids already know Arabic in most places. They just learned from the streets. But the second thing is, is that it's a... Um, it's a useful skill to have in Israel because most of the people that are trying to kill you usually speak Arabic. So it's good to know if they're trying to kill you. Uh, and last but not least, it, if they're teaching them Arabic, then it's, it's giving those teachers less time to teach them about the fact that they think that we all came from monkeys. 
You understand? So as long as they're teaching them languages, let them teach them languages, let them teach them French, Arabic, Latin, Aramaic. Let them teach them every single language. Let them teach them the binary language, zeros and ones. Just don't teach them that we came from monkeys. The point is, is that when you when you are in a secular school, you can't expect very much. The, the teacher is convinced that they came from a monkey. Most likely, the teacher is a monkey, but the kids didn't come from monkeys. So, what do you expect? There's not there's not there's not much to expect. But there's no difference in the secular schools in America, and there's no difference in the conservative and reform schools in America. Many people think that they're sending their kids to religious schools because it says Judaism. So, for example, I know somebody that takes their kid to a, um, uh, not a Zionistic school in California. Not Zionistic. It's like uh, Masolti, it's called. They're called Masolti. Like traditional, traditional school in California. So they're trying to teach. Most of the people are Israeli, that, Israelis that moved to California, to America. And they want the kids to have some type of tradition. So they teach them, I don't know, like a, an hour a day of chumash or something, but the rest of the day is nonsense. You know, that's regular subject. That some of them are useful skills, some of them are useless skills. I personally think that it's actually, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases sending your kids to a Masorti school is worse than sending them to public school. It's worse. And the reason why is because someone that goes to a public school, for example, I went to public school, and I didn't think that Judaism was anything. I didn't think about Judaism. I thought of, how could I be like the Gleam? Because I'm in school with them. They're my friends. They seem nice. We're playing together. I'm like them. Judaism was no part of the equation. When I, Any time I thought as a kid, as a 10, 11, 12-year-old kid, Anytime I thought about Judaism, I thought, oh yeah, that's something for tzaddikim, that's some, some people that are back in Israel, or sometimes in America, religious people. We're not religious, but I don't have anything against it. I don't have anything against it. I thought it was nice. I like the stories. But I don't have anything against it. But as far as my behavior, my life, I'm like, the, like everybody else. I'm a regular person in my 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, 15-year-old, 16-year-old mind. I'm a regular person. I'm not religious. But I'm not anti. When you send a kid to a place that's anti-Torah, which is Masoti, conservative, or reform, anyone that bends the rules of the Torah, then it's worse than sending him to public school. And the reason why is because what you're telling the kid is that the Torah is subjective, it's adaptable, it could change, it's up to definitions, it's something that uh, maybe we know, maybe we don't know. You could follow if you want. You could follow if you don't feel like it. You could follow it only in school to pass a test, but you don't have to when you go home. In essence, what you're telling the kid, the whole thing's a joke. So while you think you're giving your kid Jewish education, in reality, you're taking his neshama, you're taking her neshama, and you're ripping it into 500 pieces. Because the kid comes out of this Masoti school, he comes out of this conservative school. He comes out of the reform school. His uh, principal was a, uh, a guy that thought he was a girl. His uh, teacher was a dog. 
the uh, the other one was a guy wearing a tank top to class. He doesn't know right or left, but everyone wore a kippah. So he has no idea what's real. He has no idea what's right. He has no idea what's wrong. He's like, you know what? The hell with all of it. I'm going to be an atheist. I'm going to be nothing. Why? Because it's all a joke. Because the only version of Judaism you taught him was a joke. It's not Judaism. You taught him a joke. You taught him that God is like Santa Claus. You taught him that God doesn't really care. He built the world and then he left. You told him that the stories in the Torah about Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov are good stories, but they may not be real. There's no way that Moses was really able to be in Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights without eating. So there must be a trick. Maybe Yoshua ben Nun was sneaking him some, uh, some uh, you know, bonbons. You know, that's the, you're telling him that the whole thing's a joke. You tell him that modesty is only for the books because the teacher himself or herself don't know anything about modesty. The teacher is wearing a miniskirt. And you're going to tell the kid that modesty is in the Torah. Sarai Menu is known as a modest woman in the Torah. Rivka, we're going to see in this parasha. What does Rivka do? As soon as she even thinks that Yitzchak is the one that's down the road, what does she do? She covers herself. She covers herself. But he's going to be your husband. You should do, uncover yourself. No, no, no. Cover yourself. Cover yourself. Why? Because it's Kodesh. Kodesh. When you're sending him to one of these schools, you're ruining the kid. So, it's better they learn Arabic. It's better they learn Arabic. Because at least Arabic is a useful skill that's not going to ruin their soul. I know it's a very hard thing to say because people hate Arabs. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I'm not exactly the biggest fan of them. Uh, there are some decent human beings that are Arabs, but overall, many of them want to kill us. The point is, is that it's not about racism. It's not about a race. It's not about anything in particular. This is all about Hashem. Are you creating souls, saving them, or are you destroying them? Each one of us could either be a Mezakeh Rabim or Machtiah Rabim. And it all starts at home. If we send our kids to good schools with good rabbis and good teachings, we're Mezakeh Rabim. We're doing Kiruv in our own house. It's a great start. If we're sending our kids to conservative, reform, Masalti schools, all types of schools like this, we might as well not even do mitzvot because we're guaranteed Gehenom for destroying their souls. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. There's no way anyone in their right mind could even imagine a Gan Eden when they destroyed their kids' souls by sending them to one of these schools. You could give a million dollars a minute in tzedakah. It's not going to help you. Unless the kid does tshuva and saves you somehow. You send the kid to one of these schools, you're ruining the neshama. You're destroying it. Destroying it. You're telling the kid that it's okay to be religious only at school, but not at home. You're destroying the kid. I'm telling you, I went to university. I went to Binghamton University. Binghamton University in upstate New York, it's a state school. And uh, it's known that the vast, like a large majority of the students in this university are Jewish. Large majority of them. But not just Jewish, a large majority of them come from yeshivas. They come from Flatbush uh, Yeshiva and other places in New York. Because it's in New York, it's upstate New York, it's a top state school. 
So many of the kids that go to this university are religious Jews. Or they start as religious Jews. Before they came to the university, they went to yeshiva their whole life. And I can tell you from experience, some of the worst people, some of the most immodest girls, some of the biggest alcoholics, drug addicts, and so on, that I knew when I went to college, were all from yeshivas. Why? Because you can't tell the kid it's okay to be religious only at home and once you're out, you can do whatever you want. When you tell, give the kid such type of freedom when he doesn't really know yet the difference between right and wrong, you're killing the kid. We're not in the generation of Avam Avinu, Yitzchak Avinu, or even the generation of our grandparents where they knew right and wrong when they were already eight years old. Many of them were already working. This generation, they're still babies at 25. 30-year-olds are still living with their parents. Still don't know how to cook an omelet by themselves. Omelet, omelet. By the way, just take the egg, put it in the pan, and you're finished. Maybe you want to put some oil. But that's the thing. They don't know how to make an omelet. They don't know how to make a sandwich. Put the jelly on a sandwich. That's it? Yeah. How do you put the jelly on? Take a knife. They don't know. They don't know. I'm, I'm telling you, they don't know. They don't know. They don't. You think they know the difference between right and wrong? You're sending this 17-year-old poor kid, never saw a girl in his life, you're sending him to university? You're destroying his soul. Destroying it. Many of them, first year in college, destroy their neshamot. They go with girls, with this, with that, drugs, alcohol, worst thing. I saw my own eyes. So... For all of those parents that think that they're doing good for their kids by sending them away to these great schools, you're not doing them good. You're killing them. You're killing them. Only one way to educate a kid to survive Torah. Everything else, it's not going to help them. Yeah, of course, you want him to know math. You want him to know some basic science. Maybe it's going to help him in life. You want him to know some basic history so he's not a complete ignoramus. You want to know some basic skills. You don't want the guy to be completely, you know, unconnected to the world. But to just send them away into one of these schools, these public schools, these reform schools, these anti-God schools, just kill the kid. Just kill him. Same thing. I'm actually saving him the time. Maybe I'll go to Ghanedin that way. I'm I'm dead serious. Schools today, my wife and I are looking at each other. Right as of right this moment, if I had to send my kids to school, I wouldn't be able to send them to school. Where I, I don't know where. Where? Where are you going to send them? Where are you going to send them? You go to some of these uh, religious schools. They're uh, you don't know who's religious. You understand? So yeah, of course there are some decent places in the world, just not everywhere. The other Shem, the the rabbi of the Kila that we moved in, is a fantastic rabbi, Rabbi Buton. He has some plans. And Bezot Hashem will succeed as far as school is concerned. But without people like him that are really care about the emet, we can't survive. Can't survive. Any more questions? How do you help somebody? Somebody that is... Bring him to a lecture. Give him a CD. What if they don't want to listen to the CD? Send them a text message with a link of the, of the lecture. Well, that's the thing. You have to give them something that's the antidote. 
something that's going to help them with their anti-Torah attitude, something that's going to prove to them that the Torah is actually the cure instead of the poison. People that are anti-Torah, usually it's because they think the Torah is poison. They think the Torah is bad because they saw a lot of bad imagery and bad representation of Torah. They saw a bunch of people that look religious, but are really the worst people on earth. So they're a bad representation of Torah. They're not a representation of Torah, but people think that they are. So many people think that anyone that has a beard and a hat and calls himself a Jew is a representation of Am Yisrael. They're not. They're a representation of themselves. Until they represent the Torah perfectly, they're only a representation of themselves, not of Am Yisrael. So many people, myself included, have seen these people ruin Hashem's name, ruin the Torah's name. So we, I thought for many years that religion was a joke. Because most of the people that I saw were a joke. But once you actually see the Torah for what it is, and you get to meet a few decent people that actually represent the Torah for what it is, you see that the Torah is the cure. Right now, I can tell you I have a uh, few people that uh, had some tough lives. Some of them have addictions. Some of them have had bad marriages. Some of them have had some difficult, difficult issues, uh, health issues. And a few people, Baruch Hashem, are listening. They're listening really closely, and they're changing their life, and they're studying really hard, and they're doing everything they can. Some are already keeping all of the mitzvot and are literally on their way to becoming Talmidei Chachamim. Some are still not keeping Shabbat, but their personalities improve drastically, their marriages improve drastically, and they're already keeping some mitzvot, they're just not all there yet. The point I'm trying to tell you is that time after time, I see the same cure work for all issues. Marriage issues, kids issues, education issues, money issues, health issues. Every issue, Torah is the cure. And as a chidush, by the way, I can give you, I actually had earlier today or yesterday, but probably for your schut, that you know everyone says the Talmud Torah can negate kulam, right? There's a famous Gemara and Mishnah that the learning of Torah is against all of the mitzvot. You know, it's like doing all of the mitzvot. When you learn Torah, it's like you are doing, the pshat is that when you learn Torah, it's like you're fulfilling all of the mitzvot. So the chidush was, Talmud Torah keneget kulam, meaning Talmud Torah is to solve all your problems. Keneget kulam meaning is against everything, against all your problems you can solve with Torah. Against all your problems. So all of these people that are anti-Torah, they're not anti-Torah. They're anti-the fakers of Torah. Because the Torah is beautiful. Torah is amazing. It's just that there's a lot of fakers. A lot of fakers. There's also a lot of fakers in the secular world. It's not just the religious world. There's plenty of wicked people in the, in the you know, in a, uh, secular world. Next. Right, so that's that's the thing. So they are the root of the problem. Those people that say that Musar is bad, those people that say Musar is not the cure, they are the problem. How do you help them? Those people, you can't help them. They already have a guaranteed villa in Ganom. They are anti. If anyone anyone that's anti Musar that stops Musar from happening, they're part of the Erev Rav. I'm dead serious. They're, they're part of the Erev Rav Mamash. The best you can do is just ignore them, stay away from them. Don't uh, but. Changing them, in my experience, I don't think it's possible. Because to be anti-Musar, you have to be anti-Torah. Because 
the Torah has several different synonyms, several different na- uh, names for it, descriptions for it, like several different words that mean the same thing. And the Gemara says that, uh, uh, that Musar is another name for Torah. Just like, just like Torah means Orah, which means instructions, it also means Musar. It also means Musar. So to be anti-Musar, that means that you're anti-Torah. So the people that are anti the, uh, the part of the Torah that causes you to change your life, that means that they've changed the Torah into something that it's not. They've changed the Torah into exterior, exterior Judaism. It's what we have today. We have a lot of people that look Jewish. We have a lot of people that look religious. They look righteous. They look a lot of things, but they're nothing. Some of them are the worst people on earth. There's a lot of people that look... Everybody thinks that to be religious, you have to wear black and white, wear a hat, and uh, that's it. First and foremost, you should know that the whole black and white thing is very, very new. It's only in the last few generations that people are even wearing black and white. In previous generations, you aren't even allowed to wear black, period. It was viewed as a negative thing. It was viewed as if you're going to a funeral. It was a very negative thing. As a matter of fact, in the Gemara, it also talks about that the, uh, anyone that wanted to sin, anyone that had a big Yetzirah, should put on a black outfit and go to a different city. So Tosfot asks, what do you mean? Put on a black outfit and go to a different city. Does that mean that you can make every sin? Just by putting on a black outfit? He says, no, chas v'shalom, because that would cancel out the entire Torah. What is the Gemara really teaching us about this black outfit? Is that in those days it was so hard to find anything in black, that by the time you found the black outfit, by the time you found the black and white hat, by the time you found the black anything, your Yitzhak left already. It took you a week and a half. By, time, by that time, Yitzhak came, left five times. You don't have the same Yitzhak. You're not going to a different city. You're not separating yourself from anybody. Black and white is a traditional custom for everyone that goes to the business world. You go to New York, everyone's black and white. Jews, non-Jews, anyone that's in... You go to the city, you go to any office building, everyone wears suits and pants. It's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not a custom in any way, shape, or form. It doesn't, doesn't distinguish us from the gleam in any way, shape, or form. I'm not saying you should wear tank tops. You should look respectable. But the point I'm trying to say is that people think that black and white is the uniform of being a Jew. It's not. Being a Jew is you're modestly, you're wearing clothes that are modest, whatever they are, they could be any color that's modest, any style that's modest, plus you're Neshama is Jewish, meaning you're following what the Torah says. But the people that are anti-Musar have turned Judaism into something exterior. So first and foremost, they make a big deal out of the clothes. They say, oh, you have to wear black clothes all the time. The women always have to look like they're going to a funeral. And they have to wear black skirts and black hats and black uh, shirts and, and, and black, black, black. Everything is just black. And, you know, it's a, you go to a, uh, the guy's uh, house and, you know, he puts on the, uh, he's like, oh, let's watch this lecture. And you see the screen is black. Why is the screen black? Oh, no, it was a night lecture. Because everything is black. So it's not enough with the black. You can put a black. I'm wearing a black suit now, but it's, again, it's not, it doesn't make me Jewish. The beard doesn't make you Jewish. Even the, uh, the sheep has a, has a beard. The goat has a goatee. Okay, the beard doesn't make you Jewish. 
the uh, even the the head covering doesn't make you Jewish. There's plenty of Arabs that have much better head covering than us. Much better head covering. The exterior does not make you Jewish. What makes you Jewish is following the Torah, inside and outside. The way you speak, the way you behave, what you do, how you watch your eyes, how you represent the Shem at all times. That's what makes you Jewish. So people that are anti-Musar have changed that completely. They've taken everything about the inside, threw it in the garbage, and they say, no, no, Judaism is based on outside. Have a beard, have a hat, have black uniform, uh, you know, make sure that uh, you're always going like this because no one knows what you're doing. Not all the time, you know. And, uh, you know, it's, it's just exterior. And, you know, some part, sometimes have the tzitzit outside, tzitzit out, inside, you know, grow these payas. Okay, you want to grow payas, fine. There's a place in the Gemara that talks about it, but it doesn't make you Jewish. It doesn't make you Jewish. What makes you Jewish is Torah. You know, so that's the thing. So, People that are anti-Musar, they're anti-Torah. And unfortunately, in today's age, that is a very, very large part of people that are supposed to be the educators. Sometimes you go to rabbis, you tell them, hey, listen, I want to bring this guy, he teaches Musar. No, chas v'shalom, they're making it like you just cursed him out. They're making it like you just, uh, you're about to bring Osama bin Laden. But the funny thing is, is that if you told them I'm bringing Tony Robbins, or I'm bringing Zig Ziglar, or I'm bringing one of these other famous speakers that's a motivational speaker, that's a goy, it's a non-Jew, but I'm bringing him to the school, and he's going to come for free, or he's going to come for $25,000, or he's going to come for $100,000. If they can afford it, they'll let him come, and they'll be happy about it, and they'll publicize it everywhere that he's coming. What's the difference? The goy is teaching secular Musar. I'm teaching Jewish Musar. It's still Musar. But him, he doesn't obligate you. The Musar by Tony Robbins or all the coaches, all the, the people that call themselves coaches, and all the people that are professional speakers, motivational speakers, self-help speakers, they're also teaching Musar. They're also telling you stop being lazy, stop being stingy, stop being down on yourself, stop being not motivated, you know, not a, just stop being you and be better, a version of you. That's in essence what all self-help is about. Be a better version of you. They're also saying the same thing. What's the difference? The difference is the price. One case you have free. Another case you have a lot of money. But that's not the price that I'm talking about. The price that I'm talking about is that they tell you what they tell you without a care in the world if you listen or not. Because they got paid already. They care less if you listen. Listen, don't listen. Motivate yourself. Don't motivate yourself. It doesn't make a difference to them. They leave... They already forgot about you on the way to the door. Because it has no connection to them. It has no reflection on them. The fact that you've actually invited them to you, that's already a reflection on them. The actual success of the program is irrelevant. It's not connected to them. They've already achieved their success just by the fact that you've invited them and you've actually paid them. That's it, they've achieved success. If, this, if you actually have positive results as a result of what they're saying, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant to them. Here, on the other hand, there's a big difference. Why? Because you cannot continue coming to my shulim. You cannot continue watching my shulim online and stay the same. You can't. It's either you're going to stop coming or you're going to do tshuva. And the reason why is because I remind you 
every single lecture that if you don't do it, you have no olam haba. I'm telling you the ultimate price. I'm telling you the price is not with me. The price is with him. He's much more expensive. I'm telling you the actual real price. If you don't listen to what the Torah says, not only do you not have olam haba, you don't have olam azeh, you're going to keep chasing the, you know, yourself, your tail, your whole life. And get nowhere. That's the real price. So you can't continue coming to my shurim and stay the same. It's impossible. That's what you see. Sometimes people come here and little by little you see the guy turning into a little tzaddik. Little by little you see little sa'ai men who is in creation. But then once in a while you see some guy has been coming for six months or a year, disappears. Where did he go? Who knows? Maybe he's in Saudi Arabia with the princes. Maybe he's in a kola. Maybe he's running a kola. Maybe he's, I don't know. Who knows? Just disappear. No calls, no writing, no email. No. He just disappears. Like the ground swallows them. What happened? They reach the peak. They don't want to come no more because they don't want to do more tshuva. That's it. You can't continue coming and stay the same. You cannot. You cannot stay the same. So that's the outcome of Musar. Musar is a constant reminder that you have to be better. But Jewish Musar tells you the real price of if you don't become better. Secular Musar just tells you you should be better. It's a good idea, but if you don't, who cares? Jewish Musar tells you if you don't do it, you're lost. Everything is lost. I'm showing you verses. I'm showing you verses in the Torah that say what I say. Yirat Hashem i There's a verse in the Torah that says that the fear of Hashem, that's His treasure. That's Hashem's treasure. Reshit Yirat Hashem. The beginning of wisdom is fear of Hashem. Hashem says that the only way that you could even testify to yourself, you look in the mirror, don't even say it to anybody else, say it to yourself. Because anybody you say it to, they're not going to believe you anyway. You look in the mirror, He says, I fear Hashem. You're not going to believe yourself. It's like, oh, you know, I don't fear Hashem. But I have wisdom. The mirror is going to answer you back, says you're a liar on both. Why? Because you can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. Why? It says, The beginning of wisdom, just a sign, that little tiny sign that you actually have any wisdom, is if you have fear of the Almighty. Why? How could you have any wisdom and not be afraid of Hashem that gave you life, that gave you air, that gave you vision, that gave you hearing, that gave you everything that you have, had, and will have? How could you not be afraid of that? How can you not be afraid of the hand that feeds you? So, these are verses from the Torah. Hashem Barach actually specifically says in Mount Sinai, we're going to learn in about two months from now, two and a half months from now, we're going to learn in Mount Sinai, Parashat Yitro, Am Yisrael told Moshe Rabbeinu, go talk to him, we'll do whatever he says, and then we'll hear what he says. Because if he continues talking, we're all going to die. Moshe Rabbeinu answers them, He's just scaring you so you don't sin. Meaning, scare tactic is not my tactic. I didn't invent it. God did. God scared all of Am Yisrael to death. They literally all died. All of them died at Mount Sinai. And He brought them to life twice. Why? He says, if you're scared, you're not going to sin. If you're not scared, you're going to continue sinning. So anyone that's still of the mindset that fear is bad they haven't even begun to learn about Torah. 
they're still learning Christianity, they're still learning, uh, I don't know, Buddhism, they're learning Tetris, they're learning Nintendo, they're learning, I don't know, Matrix, they're learning Gargamel, I don't know what they're learning, they're not learning Torah. They're learning Bitcoins, that's what they're learning. Probably learning about Bitcoins. Next. Depends where, depends when. In today's world, no. In uh, past worlds, yes. In previous generations, yes. In today's world, it's not acceptable behavior. In today's world, if a rabbi hits the student, they'll probably sue him and take him to jail. Uh, but in the previous generations, yes, because in essence, the students were like the children of the rabbi. They would spend an enormous amount of time with the rabbi, and the rabbi would have to keep them in check. But the rabbis wouldn't hit the children to the point where they would have bruise marks and like things like that. You know, they would hit them like a normal parent hits a kid, like slap them on the butt or something like that just to get them to shape up, but not like to a point where they're punching them in the face or anything. That's not Judaism. But you should know, there's a couple of places in the Gemara where you see, many places in the Gemara, where you see um, the sages talking to each other in very sharp language. Very sharp language. You see the uh, see uh, one place saying that um, this guy doesn't have a brain, or you've uh, you've committed baltashchit, you've uh, committed a sin of wasting by writing your 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 idea on paper because your idea is wrong, and the, the, you've wasted the ink and the pen because of your idea. You see several places in the Torah that the sages in Shulchan Aruch, in, um, in uh, Gemara, in, uh, in many other places, also in Chachamim, exchange ideas and so on, you see that they talk very, very sharply to each other, where in today's politically correct world, it's not acceptable behavior. Like if I say to somebody, hey, by the way, it looks like you have no brain. You take it offensively. Most people take it offensively. It's like, oh, wow, Rabbi told me I don't have a brain. Maybe I don't have one. I'm going to go kill myself. I'm going to go overdose on drugs. And I'm blaming it on the rabbi. You know, like people start writing letters. You're going to have some association start emailing me 500 times a day. How can you say people don't have a brain? Some guy made a comment on one of my videos a few days ago. And he says, uh, I like what you're saying, but it's not nice that you call people idiots. So, you know, it's this politically correct, weak world that people take stuff offensively. But then at the same token, the very same people that I'm telling you are holy of holies are saying much worse things to each other. You see, Rebbe, Rabbi Kadosh says to one of the other Chachamim in the Gemara, you have no brain. It looks like your head has no brain inside it. So what's the, what's the pshat? What's the meaning here? Why are they saying such things? Why are they using such sharp language? Because the Chachamim knew that to be angry, to be angry is not allowed in Judaism. It's equivalent of Avodah Zarah. So, but in the debates that you're having on the, for chasing the truth, things can get heated. So in, instead of getting angry, they would use sarcasm. You use sarcasm to cool it up a little bit, but even sometimes, even if they're heated, but instead of projecting actual real anger, mamash anger, they project different words like this that were just like sharp remarks against each other. But we call it today sarcasm. 
So it's not like us insulting each other. It's not that he really means the guy doesn't have a brain. It's just a smart remark to say, come on, it's wrong. But it's like a funny way, sarcastic way, dry way to say it. So, but that's much better than the guy taking a table and smashing it on his head because his team lost in the video game. You understand? So that's the language. So in, in reality, you'll see that this language sometimes that we use that the politically correct world thinks is, is too sharp or too much, it's actually much less than what the Chachamim actually really used. Like some of the things they say to each other, obviously they don't curse, but uh, some of the things they say to each other, I'm like, wow, if a big Chacham told me this, I think I'd die on the spot. The guy tells you you don't have a brain or you've wasted the ink, things like that. It's very funny. It's very, very funny, by the way. You'll see it in the Gemara B'Zad Hashem. You'll see it. It's a uh, different, different places. Next, anything else? Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, listen, the the, uh, the fact that you converted is fantastic. You already have a special privilege with Hashem. So that's already helping your family, just the fact that you exist, especially the more you learn, the more you do, and, and so on. So, Baruch Hashem, that's great. Uh, the Doing Kiruv with family is the most difficult form of Kiruv uh, because your family is always going to remember you before you did tshuva, before you converted, and so on. So that's very, very reluctant by their own nature to listen to someone so close. So usually the best idea is to bring them someone else. So either bring them a lecturer, bring them a lecturer, bring them uh, somebody that has the truth you want to deliver to them, but in an indirect way. Send them an email, give them a CD, send them a book. In essence, give them the opportunity to discover the information on their own, even though you're the one that's given them the handout. Uh, that's a more realistic way of actually doing Kiruv with family, especially in the uh, as far as uh, people that are not Jewish at all and so on. So I think that sending them debates between rabbis and, uh, and, uh, and uh, these reverends, these Uvdei Avodah Zarah, uh, is good, but you have to be careful with which debate you send them because some people are more inclined to listen to certain speakers than others. So that's why, since you're not a prophet and you don't know which one is good and which one is bad for people, the most important part of doing kiruv with family is praying before you do it. So before you send that link, before you give that CD, before you send that book, say Hashem, help me out Hashem. I know you're my father and my mother, but they're still the ones that are the uh, biological parents here. They're still your children. They're still your creation. Do you really want to lose them? No. How do we know he doesn't want to lose them? How do we know that Hashem loves all of his creations? From the same prophet Yonah we read before. Same prophet Yonah. Actually, that was the end of the prophet Yonah. Hashem says to Yonah, there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right from their right hand from their left, and many animals as well. Meaning that the Chachamim are explaining that Hashem was rebuking Yonah for not wanting to rebuke the Goim. He says there was 120,000 people in Nineveh, 
120,000 people in Nineveh, you wanted them to just lose their world, lose their Olam I also created them. Okay, they're not Jews, but I still love them. They're still my creations. So that's why it's important for us to do Kiruv and as much as possible. But in order for Hashem to help us, we have to help ourselves. So we have to earn special privileges with Hashem. If we're saving Jews on a regular basis, if we're doing Kiruv on a regular mm-hmm. basis, then that is giving us a special privilege with Hashem Yitbarach. So when we can't do Kiruv in our own family, Hashem will do it for us. Why? Because He doesn't want us to be upset. He wants us to continue being strong. He wants us to continue publicizing His name. So if we give Him a, if we give him a reason, He'll do it. It's just that we have to give Him a reason. You know, many people want other people to do tshuva, but they don't do anything about it. There's plenty of times I hear from mothers of kids or, or uh, fathers or so on, where they tell them, oh yeah, my kid is going out with a non-Jew, or my kid is just not religious, or my kid is this, or my kid is that. I'm like, all right, so did you talk to him about it? No. Did you tell him that he's not allowed to drive on Shabbat? No. Did you bring anybody else to talk to him? No. Okay, do you, what do you want to do? I don't know, what should I do? I'm, I'm calling you to, yeah, okay, all right, so you know what, let's start by sending him a Kiruv package. It's, you know, if you send him a Kiruv package, has a book, has some CDs, uh, I mean, it costs $95, and, you know, oh, you can't have somebody else pay for it? Like, they don't even want to pay for it. They have, you know, a brand new car that costs them $1,000 a month, that's no problem. They have a house that costs them a half a million dollars, that's no problem. They have a, uh, you know, every dinner they go out to uh, two, three, four times a week, cost them two, three hundred dollars, that's no problem. Ninety-five bucks to save their kid? No. You understand? So whatever, we end up sending it anyway for free because we realize that they're probably in a worse situation than their own kid. So some, Hashem will have to send us the money in a different way. But the point I'm trying to say is that sometimes people, they want all the help in the world, but they're not willing to help themselves. They know that the kid is not allowed to drive on Shabbat, but they don't say anything to him. They know that the kid's, uh, you know, eating non-kosher, but they don't say anything to him. We are in a world where there's no anshem unah, anshem unah avadu. We can read it in a prayer every day in uh, Shachrit. In Shachrit, it says anshem unah avadu. There's no more anshem unah. This is a pasuk from Jeremiah, where Shemit Bar says there's no more people that mamash have real emunah that are fighting for my name. That's, it's a reminder, it's a reminder for us every day in Shachrit, we read it really fast, so it's very easy to skip this part and not realize what we're saying, but it's actually a, a very deep reminder, a very deep reminder of why the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed. It wasn't destroyed because of simply, uh, you know, Sinat Chinam, of we just didn't like each other. It was, the definition of not liking each other was the fact that we did not rebuke each other. We did not do anything about other people sinning. We saw another guy driving on Shabbat, we said nothing. We saw another guy eat chazir, we said nothing. We saw another guy going out with a non-Jew, we said nothing. We said nothing. Stayed quiet. So, the time has come for us to start using the real cure. You know, you want to bring shalom to the world? You want to bring peace to the world? Shalom is the name of God. Bring God to the world. Being nice to people starts with saving the neshamot. Your smile is worthless if you know that the guy is going to a gas chamber. If you're smiling at a guy that's driving on Shabbat and not doing anything about it, 
You're no different than Nazis. They also say Danke Schenk. They also say thank you. They also smiled. You saw the guy who's driving on Shabbat and saying, yeah, yeah, did you have a good time? Did you go to the movies? Wow, psh, great, good for you. You don't say anything about it? You're, you're a little Jewish Nazi. That's all you are. Why? You don't care about the person. You're, in essence, supporting his behavior. Tell him it's okay to still continue staying an anti-God. It's not, you're not doing him any, any favors. And in Shemaim, you'll have to pay for it. And Shemaim, he'll be a Mechal Shabbat, and you'll be a Mechal Shabbat. So that's, that's what the Gemara is teaching us in multiple places. In Gemara, Masechet Barachot, Masechet Abu Dazara, Masechet Shabbat, Masechet Sanhedrin, a few other places, says that the, uh, someone that uh, sees another person sinning and doesn't do anything about it, it's as if they sin themselves. So Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah was one of the Tanaim, one of the Kodesh Kodeshim, one of the ones that was considered literally equal to all of the Chachamim. He found out one time that he made a mistake by not rebuking his neighbor. He did tshuva his entire life for it. He fasted for the rest of his life. Literally fasted every day and just to survive would eat, you know, a little bit. But every day to the point where all of his teeth turned black. For what? One time he saw his neighbor's cow. His neighbor's cow was carrying on Shabbat. And his neighbor was some, you know, widow. Miskena, husband died. He's a nice lady, whatever. So he didn't say anything to her. He's like, ah, she's miskena, whatever. Maybe next week she'll keep Shabbat. The Chachamim told him, you're wrong. You're supposed to rebuke her. For that, it's considered like you, Michal Shabbat. In Shemaim, they're going to say, you violated Shabbat this one time. Not his whole life. One time violated Shabbat, you violated Shabbat, Rabbi Azal. And he did Shabbat the rest of his life. Fasted the rest of his life. So we see people every week. Same people drive to Bikneset every week. Same people. Don't keep Shabbat every week. Don't say anything. It's time to say something. You can't say it. Bring somebody else to say it. So you have, Baruch Hashem, plenty of ways to do Kiruv. Hopefully you have enough motivation. Hopefully you have motivation. Rabbi Matya is telling you. It's time to do it. Zat Hashem, tomorrow we have another lecture in Miami. Miami Beach. Different, obviously, the next Mishnah. Continue more things about the parasha, more questions. Hopefully, each one of us will think of a few ideas of what they can do in order to save Am Yisrael, in order to save the world. Because, like I told you in the beginning, the world's heating up, it's getting ugly, it's getting difficult, and the only commodity that's going to be of any value is if you saved any neshamot. Did you save anyone? Did you do anything useful for, for the world? Did you do anything for the world? You didn't do anything for the world? You're part of it. You're part of the problem. Be'ezrat Hashem, we will learn enough not to be part of the problem, but rather part of the solution. Ba'uch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.